Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. This is also episode 10.0 of my Black Sabbath arc, Arc Sabbath, something which I started releasing episodes for on the 15th of March 2021, and eight and a half months later, we are finally at the last episode of the series. I actually started work on this back in February of 2021, started doing my initial interviews and reaching out to people who I felt might be an interesting contributor to the arc. So I started collecting participants and recording the first few interviews in February 2021. And here we are in December 2021 now, and it's finally on the last episode of the series. So it's been a really interesting and enjoyable time for me. And I will give you my feelings about the whole series at the end of this episode. But, like all episodes, I'm just going to pick up where we left off last time. So on Arc Sabbath episode 9.0, we were discussing the final two albums recorded with Tony Martin. That is Cross Purposes and Forbidden. Now, opinions varied on those two albums, but they got a bit of love that you don't often hear for the Tony Martin output, especially for the latter two albums in the Tony Martin run with Black Sabbath. Uh, certainly there were songs on those albums that I enjoyed and as is typical at the start of each episode of Arc Sabbath I'm going to look back on a couple of songs from the albums we covered on the previous episode. So from cross purposes I'm going to play a clip of the song Psychophobia. This came up in my chat on the last episode especially with Alejandra where we discussed the lyrics about kissing the rainbow goodbye. A definite dig at Ronnie James Dio in my opinion there. Interesting lyrics from Tony Martin who was a contributing songwriter to that song. Uh, Here is a clip from Psychophobia from Cross Purposes released in 1994. Okay, and I'm only going to play one more track here. So, to me, these albums are decent. Uh, There's some good songs on them. But in the grand scheme of Black Sabbath, they're probably not the most interesting or most important in the catalogue. They're probably down towards the bottom, in fact, of the list. Not that I make lists, uh, but the song I'm going to play from Forbidden is the song Get a Grip. Now, to me, this is a very groove-oriented song, and it's really catchy in that regard, in that it's kind of like the bass and the guitar riff that I'm into more so than the singing. But it stands out to me on the album for being something quite different to the rest of the material that's unforbidden. So here's the song Get a Grip, which has an excellent music video as well, by the way, if you fancy looking it up on YouTube. Some really interesting animation there. Uh, you can see a painting from that, or a still from that, if you will, on the Forbidden album cover. If you fold out the album sleeve, you'll see that the picture of the Grim Reaper extends out into a larger picture which features like uh, members of Black Sabbath characterized, caricaturized, is that a word? Caricatures of the members of Black Sabbath and uh, the whole video of Get a Grip is, is in the same animation style. I think as Jonathan said to me in one of our chats, it's like a Red Bull advertisement, that type of animation. And that was a very good uh, observation by Jonathan. Yeah. 
Okay, so that was Get a Grip, and we're going to move on with the story, but let's just fill in some of the blanks that happened around 94, 95, before we move ahead with the arc. So, um, in 94, Black Sabbath embarked on the Cross Purposes Tour. Uh, On this tour, they recorded a live album and a video, a clip of which I actually opened the episode with there. But, uh, yes, this was released as Cross Purposes Live, and... It was released in album and video format, like bands like Iron Maiden kind of did as well in the 1990s, where you released a video and a CD together, and it was like this package thing. And if you look up the video of Cross Purposes Live Online, it's still available, and it's quite an interesting watch, as Tony Martin covers off songs from many different eras of Black Sabbath, Ozzy, Dio, himself, and it's a really kind of comprehensive collection of songs from Black Sabbath that covers right from the 70s up until the present day. Then, during the Cross Purposes tour, the drummer at the time, Bobby Rondinelli, decided to quit Black Sabbath and was replaced by none other than Bill Ward, who had filled in for a few South American dates. The first time Bill Ward had been seen or heard of in Black Sabbath since the Born Again album. So, at the time, we have uh, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler and Bill Ward in Black Sabbath in 1994, which is quite unusual, in fact, um, because people often forget that these people kind of popped in and out of Black Sabbath quite a lot. I mean, Geezer Butler was actually on the majority of all Black Sabbath albums. There's only a handful that he didn't play on. And Bill Ward kind of popped in and out and in and out uh, over the years as well. So it's interesting to see Bill popping up in the 1990s. And of course, he would pop up again in the years that followed, which we will cover on this episode. Then, uh, after the Cross Purposes tour finished, Geezer Butler decided to quit Black Sabbath out of frustration. He then formed the band GZR, or Geezer, I assume it's supposed to be pronounced, and wrote a song quite dismissive of Black Sabbath and Tony Iommi at the time. I mean, you don't have to read too deeply into the lyrics uh, of the song Giving Up the Ghost to realise that it's clearly written about Tony Iommi dragging Black Sabbath through the mud. Although Geezer kind of is, can't be blameless either here because he was with him most of the time. But the lyrics from that song or some selected lyrics are, You plagiarised and parodied the magic of our meaning. A legend in your own mind left all your friends behind. You can't admit that you're wrong. The spirit is dead and gone. I mean, if that's not written about Tony Iommi and the multiple lineup changes in Black Sabbath and is, what did I read one time in, in Q magazine? Something like, Iommi doggedly kept the band alive. I think I mentioned this before, and I had to go up and look up what the word doggedly meant. Um, and I've used it now quite a lot since, so thanks Q Magazine, circa 2003, for that. So, Geezer Butler has packed up his bass and his beard dye and gone home. Um, now, let's go back to Mick Wall's book. So, Mick continues, It got worse, much worse, before it could get better, of course. There was one further Black Sabbath album titled Forbidden, and released to utter bafflement in 1995. Produced by Ernie C., 
Guitarist and Body Count, the rap metal band fronted by rapper Ice-T, the latter sharing vocals with Tony Martin on the opening track, The Illusion of Power, at a time when new metal rap rock acts like Limp Bizkit were enjoying their 15 minutes of fame, Forbidden was an embarrassing last throw to dice by a band that had lost their way so badly they were surely never coming back. With Geezer having vamoosed, Neil Murray agreed to rejoin. I always preferred choice would have been to keep Bobby Rondinelli on drums, but he finally plumped for inviting Cozy Powell back too. As Murray explains, Tony thought that it was probably better to have the same rhythm section as 1989-1990, but things were not the same. In 1994, Sabbath was very much Tony's band, and Cozy was expecting that it would be a twin leader situation, as before, but that wasn't the case, which Cozy found irksome. Musically, Cozy wanted Sabbath to sound like it had on Headless Cross, but that was rather dated and 80s by then. Murray recalls how during the songwriting rehearsals at Bluestone Farm in West Wales in October 1994, Cozy quite often got the beat the wrong way round when learning a new riff, in that he wasn't hearing the riff that Tony had in his head. This happened enough times to make all parties feel uncomfortable. Jeff Nichols had taken Cozy's place as Tony's lieutenant, and it also didn't help that myself and Cozy had a few weekend prior commitments to gigs with Spike Edney's SAS band, basically the Brian May band without Brian, but with various guest singers. It was implied that we should commit every waking hour to Sabbath, though of course nothing was said at the time. Tony Iommi, Tony Martin and Jeff used to generally go home to Birmingham at the weekends anyway. So, Mick continues, With IRS urging the band on to a much more post-grunge 90s sound, the idea was to get a producer who would get a more current sound. And for some reason, Ice-T was the choice, perhaps because Tony Iommi had met him and got on well with him. However, Ice-T backed out in favour of Ernie C, who turned out not to have much in the way of production ideas and mostly wasn't on the same wavelength as the band. Cozy particularly didn't care to be told to change the drum patterns he'd worked out. But while the production would be blamed for most of the album's shortcomings, it was the very concept that was skew with. Black Sabbath as rap metal overlords? What drugs were they on now? In fact, Iommi's days of burying his head in mountains of coke were coming to an end, yet he had never felt so lost before. The subsequent tour was equally disheartening. After a month of shows in North America and Canada, Cozy quit in disgust. Cozy's lack of say in the band's direction, his dissatisfaction with the venues we were playing, which were big clubs some of the time, finding Jeff Nichols and Tony Martin irritating and childish, which they are, expecting to be paid more, etc., led him to quitting, says Neil Murray now. Bobby Rondinelli was summoned back and duly returned for long tours of Europe, where the band remained significant, Britain, where they did not, and Japan, where most people had no idea who was in the band but expected to at least hear Paranoid. They were not disappointed. There had been an Australian tour schedule for the end of the year, but that was cancelled at the promoter's insistence after it became clear no one was interested enough to buy tickets anymore. Tony Iommi was much happier with Bobby Rondinelli back in the band, says Murray, and the European tour and Far East tours, which followed, were a lot more successful and enjoyable. In the US, people didn't know the songs from Forbidden, which was demoralising, though they sounded a lot heavier than on the album. For once, though, heavier was simply not enough. Tony Iommi played his last show in Black Sabbath without Ozzy Osbourne at the modestly appointed Sankai Hall in Osaka, Japan on the 22nd of November 1995. There would be no more endless fucking around with the Black Sabbath name. Sharon Osbourne would make sure of it. So I'm going to go back in time a little bit here because I want to touch on an interesting topic that I first encountered in Mick Wall's book, but has often been speculated by Black Sabbath fans over the years. And it's from a passage in the 1990s. It, it starts around 1992. And I'm just going to read from his book here. It's page 318. So it starts, 
What nobody knew was that something had happened in the run-up to the Costa Mesa shows in 1992 that would alter the course of Black Sabbath history forever. 48 hours before the first show, Tony Iommi had been arrested in Sacramento for non-payment of child support. A lawsuit issued on behalf of his former wife Melinda, now living back with her family in Modesto, California. He was taken off Sabbath's tour bus by the arresting officers, placed in handcuffs and leg shackles, and driven to Modesto County Jail, where he spent the night in fear of his life from the other prisoners, while bail was arranged and set at $75,000. A substantial sum of money to Tony Iommi, still then recovering from his recent battles with the British taxman, and he didn't have it easily to hand. In his memoir, Iron Man, Iommi writes that it was Gloria Butler who informed Tony's managers, Ralph Baker and Ernest Chapman, of the guitarist's plight, and they who, in turn, sent a local lawyer to the jailhouse with a briefcase containing $75,000 in cash, thus freeing the terrified guitarist and allowing him to make the Costa Mesa shows in time. Yet, in 1994, around the time Sharon Osbourne decided not to pursue the Aussie Sabbath reunion, she phoned me to tell me she had now acquired the legal rights to the name Black Sabbath after helping Tony Iommi out of an embarrassing financial fix which found him briefly incarcerated in jail after, she said, his credit cards had been snipped, sending her own private plane and lawyer with bail money down to rescue him in return for his signing over his remaining rights to the Sabbath name. At the time, she'd wanted his plight known to the world as a paycheck for all the years of grief he had delivered both to her and most especially Ozzy. She urged me to print the story. Ozzy was pushed around for years, she said simply. I've made sure that that never happens again. Indeed she had. Now what's interesting about this is that I have never read this or heard this from any other source as specifically as that, that the timeline was 1992 to 94. Maybe it took a couple of years of legalities for the name to be signed over, but it would insinuate that while Iommi was still working on Black Sabbath albums such as Cross Purposes and Forbidden, that Sharon Osbourne actually owned the name Black Sabbath. And why that's interesting is that, as Geezer Butler said, he was dragging the name through the dirt, he was plagiarising and parodying and the magic of her meaning, etc, etc. That was kind of what a lot of the fans thought as well, and the media. And if Sharon Osbourne did own the name Black Sabbath in 94-95, why was she still allowing Iommi to release albums under the name? Now, it's possible it could have been a contract with IRS Records that had to be fulfilled. And then, that's why maybe they released the album so quickly, Cross Purposes in 94, Forbidden 95, and all of a sudden then, we're into a Black Sabbath reunion in 1996. But it's interesting to me to read it in black and white in such specific terms, called out so blatantly in Mick Wall's book. And when I was speaking to Joe Sigler from black-sabbath.com, I asked him about this specific point. Now, at the time I was just messaging privately on Twitter, he had never read Mick Wall's book, but he did say he would go and seek out the specific pages and read them and come back to me. And when he came back to me, this is what he said. Yeah, that did not happen. The, the setup for it, regarding money and whatnot had to do with child support and all that. And she, basically the, 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 the comment in the book was that she gained control of the name Black Sabbath over a $75,000 loan or something like that. I have, so I looked into that without going into the detail of my research, which would probably get me in trouble. Um, that, that did not happen that way. First off, Ownership of the control of the name Black Sabbath would not pass for just a mere $75,000. And I did look into it. That basically didn't happen. I mean, the issue, the money was a thing, but ownership of the band name, no. I don't know Mick Wall, and to be honest, I haven't read the book myself. 
once you made that comment to me on Twitter, I asked a friend who did have the book to send me a picture or two of the relevant pages. So I did read that individual section, but I didn't read that book in general. And as I don't know Mick, I would rather not answer why do you think Mick would say that? Um, there could be any number of reasons. Because, I mean, myself, as I say this, I mean, you, you mentioned my timeline page earlier. And on the beginning of the page, so I, it, yeah, I don't remember, it's somewhere on the page. I don't remember where on the page, not really relevant. But it, I basically tell people, this is my researched story of the band. But at no point do I ever claim for it to be the gospel truth. Having said that, uh, I know a lot. I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. Um, but if 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 something's found out to be wrong, I want to fix it. So the things that I declare, uh, just say for example, on any particular part, just random, you know, line up thirty-two, just pulling random numbers. Um, if it's found out to be wrong, then I want to know from somebody involved with line line up 32 what did i do wrong and why did i get it wrong the reason i went down this path is i don't want to answer the question of why did mick wall write that if it didn't happen because i don't know what access what information he had that led him to write that so i i don't feel because i a don't know him b haven't read the whole book and c don't know what would have led him to say that i don't think it's fair for me to answer why did Mick write that if it didn't happen? Okay, so fairly confident point by Joe there. He seems to think it didn't happen, but not confident to the point of absolute arrogance. He's also willing to admit that on occasion he does get things wrong and is willing to correct them. When the topic came up in my conversation with Mick Wall, I was glad that he raised it because it gave me the opportunity to present what Joe had said to him. But before we got to that, it naturally came up in conversation. What led to it was, I had asked Mick, was Sharon Osborne playing somewhat of a puppet master when she asked Black Sabbath, with Ronnie James Dio fronting them in 1992, to support Ozzy Osbourne on his farewell tour, knowing full well that Ronnie James Dio wouldn't want to support Ozzy Osbourne. This was his response. You know, what is Sharon Osbourne if not a puppet master? Well, what's her job if it's not to be puppet master? She doesn't fucking play keyboards, you know doesn't write any fucking songs you know she keeps the fucking lunatic keeps looney tunes in line and makes sure that everything's going along in a multi-million dollar direction iomi and sharon told me this story herself i'm going to say this is in like 94 before the debark at uh, costa Mesa. um iomi had married this model in america called melinda uh, melinda from modesta and uh he married her on the tour i did the heaven and hell tour in la at the sunset marquee in a in, a, in his suite at the sunset marquee they'd hired a justice of the peace to come in and marry them no one else in the room and when the justice of the peace said do you have a witness Tony pointed at a giant teddy bear in the corner of the room. He went, there's your fucking witness. Right? Fucking get on with it. So, so this same classy girl, Melinda, um, they divorced, you know. I think they actually have a child in fairness, maybe two, who knows. 
um, and uh, divorced, but Iommi didn't pay alimony. But then when, uh, it must have been Sabbath, a Dio Sabbath, came through, El, it wasn't El Paso, but you know, came through somewhere near the border, um, Iommi was arrested, literally thrown into jail. At this point, his credit cards weren't working and he had no money and Sharon stepped in and offered to send a private plane, pay the bail, pay everybody off uh, and give him a big fucking bag of cash, make it all go away. But first he'd need to sign a bit of paper. And on that paper were the rights to the Black Sabbath name. So in order to literally get out of his El Paso fucking jailhouse, uh, he signs a bit of paper, car turns up, takes him to the private jet, takes him back to L.A., and now his ass belongs to Sharon. When I mentioned what Joe had said, this was Mick's response. Does he, does he know Sharon? I then mentioned that Joe had done a lot of work with Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward working on their individual websites. And Mick said... Ah, well, they're not going to fucking admit to that, are they? I then mentioned the lawsuit of the 2010s where... Ozzy Osbourne sued Tony Iommi for the ownership of Black Sabbath. Mick mentioned he hadn't heard of this before, but maintained that even if Tony Iommi did lose the name of Black Sabbath, that he would never admit to it. Publicly, at least. Well, it could be that... Uh, I don't know anything about that. It's the first I've ever heard of that. But I'm telling you right now, why would Iommi admit to that? His, his autobiography is the biggest pile of shit I've ever read in my life. It's full of bullshit. Um, Sharon and I knew each other very well and she told me many, 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 many things that never came out um, but you're Tony Iommi and people are cutting your credit cards in half when you go to pay for a meal in a restaurant you haven't paid daddy money for years on end to your kid and um, your career is going nowhere fast who who do you really think won that battle? You should read Don Arden's memoir. You should see you should see the stuff Sharon has done to Ozzy. These are these are these are people that don't fuck around that do set up enormous scenarios for exactly this sort of thing to happen. And if you honestly think that that didn't happen, well, I just say good luck. Put the t-shirt on, and may God go with you. I'll see you at the backstage door waiting for an autograph. I again mentioned Joe Sigler's close connections with many of the band members and his extensive research since 1995 of Black Sabbath, putting together an information archive larger than anything else online. Right. Has he ever snorted coke with Iommi? I assumed probably not. Well then, my dear friend, he wasn't in the room, was he? We will revisit this topic down the line when we get to the formation of the band Heaven and Hell, which we all know was Black Sabbath under a different name. But before we can move ahead with our story, I want to introduce you to two new contributors to Ark Sabbath. The first new contributor is Eric Shaw. You might know him from the podcast Maiden A to Z. I've had his co-host Jonathan Hedlund on previous episodes of Ark Sabbath in the past. Eric is also a big fan of Black Sabbath, as well as being a dedicated Iron Maiden fan. He grew up initially in the US, when, at the age of 11, he moved to Sweden, where he's resided ever since. I'll allow Eric to tell you how he got into the band in the first place. 
So I think this probably would have been around 99, and I was about 15 at the time. And I think uh, I'd sort of heard of them just because I knew a couple of older guys who listened to you know, hard rock and metal. Um, I hadn't heard them, but I had seen like the various covers in the, in the record shops. I remember specifically it was a cross purposes was the first album cover I saw. And I thought that looked pretty cool. Uh, I, and then I eventually I did hear end up hearing, I think the first, the first one was Iron Man I heard. Um, and it was, it sort of blew my mind because I wasn't really aware. I, I didn't, I didn't know up until that point that you could do that or it's hard to explain. It's like this when you're that age, you're just discovering music. There's so much stuff that's, you know, you could blow away by everything because everything's brand new and you didn't like first time I heard Metallica. I didn't know you could do that. And I didn't know you could do this. Uh, Iron Man is not my favorite song. I mean, it's bookended by two better songs, but it's, it was just sort of, yeah, it was, uh, it blew my mind. Just that the, the riff, the, the, the um, what's it called? The, the weird kind of like it sounds like a dive uh whammy bar a dive but that's not what it is you know when the, the sort of more noise at the beginning and i was when someone told me that was a guitar that really surprised you know that 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 blew me away but again like i said i was fairly new to this so everything was pretty mind-blowing i think actually yeah the first one i did i'm getting was was paranoid uh because i recognized uh iron man was on that one that's the one i recognized and then um I, the same guy who played me that also had played me had played me the song paranoid um so i really dug that so I got that. And then I think from there I did, it probably was the reunion album, uh, the live album that I got. And then from there I could sort of, I just sort of picked the like songs I really dug and I sort of figured out what, what albums they were on. And then I got, so it was probably went from, it probably was uh, Paranoid Reunion and then maybe Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and then Masters of Mass Reality, I think. And then maybe after that it would have been Sabotage, I think. It took me a while to get the first one, I think. I didn't, that, that wasn't probably one of the later purchases probably. I asked Eric who originally introduced him to Black Sabbath. I think it was a neighbor, actually, um, who did actually go to the same school. But yeah, it was a, a neighbor. And he's also the same guy who kind of got me into like Nirvana and all kinds of stuff because he, like, he was a little bit older and he had um, had a sort of sizable record collection. And mine, did, mine was not at that point. Mine was because um, I just sort of like around that time sort of started getting really into music in general. So I didn't really, I didn't really have any. I had like two CDs. And I think one of them was, uh, um, I think my mom got me, uh, it was like, best of elvis but it was like the christmas version just the christmas song so it's not something it really you know you're not going to listen to the you know that often well you said you had two cds eric what was the other one? Oh, i don't remember but i think it was also some kind of best of like pop like like absolute music like something or other and just whatever was popular at the time yeah so i, I don't even know what was on it i, I think there was a u2 whatever u2 song was big at the time was probably on there uh, but nothing, you know, yeah, it was just whatever was on the radio pretty much. And that's, but that sort of changed around the time I, I got around because I sort of got into Metallica and Black Sabbath sort of during the same like six months period. And then also Iron Maiden around the same time. And actually they actually very, I had very good luck because they, all three of those bands were, came to Stockholm during the same, like Metallica were in May, Maiden were in September. And uh, I think uh, Sabbath were in December, but it was a, it was it was a very good it was very it was a very it was the perfect time for me to get into that kind of stuff because it was you know it was just, just you know by luck they all they all came here in that sort of short period, and uh, also just like you know I saw I, so I got to see the reunion tour both both the Sabbath reunion tour and the um, or not not I don't I don't know if it was still a reunion tour whatever tour the ninety nine one was called so it was very lucky so so you know it was a, and it was um, but during that time metal was not as big as it sort of is these days it was still kind of you know you. Well, I was not considered particularly cool uh, back then for being into that. But we also lived in a pretty 
sort of uh, upscale kind of rich kind of area. So, you know, there was, you know, there was no one walking around in band t-shirts at that point. It was, it was very, so I became even more sort of, sort of an outsider when I started getting to that stuff. I asked Eric if he felt that heavy metal as a music genre is more accepted in Sweden than it was in the States or maybe is in the States even to this day. From what I can, from what I can tell, talking to people in the states around the who are my age, uh, growing up, and you know the kind of where I used to live in the states, even yeah, I think it's way more accepted here uh, than it was over than it is and was over there. Maybe not is. I think it's pre- this point is pretty upset. You know, I think it's pretty accepted ev- everywhere at this point. Um, but I wasn't really aware of it being a big deal. Like uh, it's sort of like I think it was maybe like two thousand two thousand one sometime around there is when I discovered how you know. Uh, how big it was here and how many, you know, more people there were sort of like me, so to say, um, uh, because in my school, there was, there was me and one other guy and that's pretty much it. And then I, I think I was, uh, invited to some sort of party and then I met like tons of people. And then I discovered there was a huge metal scene and just you know, band scene in the area. So, you know, right in the same sort of small town I lived in or sort of, or County rather, I'm not sure what the word is, but it's like, uh, it's sort of a suburb of Stockholm, I guess you'd call it. Um, and that's sort of, it's like, there's, uh, I don't know if you've seen the walking dead, but there's like somewhere in that, in that, like, like a third or fourth season of the sort of the, the main characters discover there's like tons of other communities out there. They're not just, you know, it's not just them. They're, they're not alone. That's kind of what it kind of was like, because I, I had no idea it was, that was, it was, a, that was a thing. Seeing as Eric was going to be discussing the Ronnie James Dio fronted album, the devil, you know, on this episode of Eric Sabbath, I asked him, did he also listen to the Ronnie James Dio era albums at that time when he was growing up discovering the Aussie era of black Sabbath? I did, but it was, I was very late. That's the same thing. I think we probably, uh, I'm not sure if I talked, discussed this with you before we, uh, I know I talked about it on Maiden A to Z, uh, some of the, cause I had, since a lot of this stuff was introduced to me by older, older, uh, people that kind of sort of explained to me, well, you're not really supposed to like, you know, the, the, the ones that aren't Aussie, those aren't the real albums. And the same thing, like, oh, you can't really, you're not supposed to like Load or Reload. That's not the real Metallica. Or indeed, you're not supposed to, oh, you can't really, you can't like the X-Factor. That's not the real, that's not real Iron Maiden. And then, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, then you sort of, I sort of bought that, bought into that for a little while, um, which is ridiculous. It's that everything that even the, you know, the, the Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi, um, is just as much Black Sabbath as Paranoid or Master Reality, but you know you you kind of uh, when there's an, an older uh, quote unquote cooler person telling you what you you know you shouldn't do that, then you don't. I guess I, I just didn't do it. But I really got into the um, the Dio albums. Uh, that might have been that, that might have been like two thousand, like I mean three or four or something around there. It took a long time before I really started getting into all the other ones, uh, and they're. And it, it, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, I feel like that wasted so much time not listening to them because they're, I mean, especially the Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules and even, even Dehumanizer. I mean, all of them, all three of them are really good, but I too, I too wish I sort of, you know, I, there's, there's years I wasted where I could have been listening to them. The second new contributor is Dan Mortimer from England. I was introduced to Dan via a mutual friend, Andrew DeBroy, who many of you will recognize from my Senjutsu review three-part series I did recently. Dan, again, is also a fan of Black Sabbath, and he got into the band maybe later than most of the contributors on this series. His fandom is more recent than that of almost everybody else, I think actually everybody else, who has contributed so far. Here's how Dan first got into the band Black Sabbath. I'd I'd always been aware of them, like having got into Maiden and everything beforehand, but but for a long time, like Maiden and Metallica were my bread and butter, and I didn't really venture out of that too much. But um, 
you know, I, I was aware of like Paranoid and like War Pigs and uh, Children of the Grave and everything like that. And um, I, I didn't get into them properly until years later. And I think even then I got into the Dio era before I got into Aussie and everything. I know, I know we're going to be talking about the devil, you know, anyway, but I remember um, buying a copy of Metal Hammer back in, well, 2009, it probably would have been, but not too long before the album came out. And back then, like, um, you'd get like a free CD with every copy of the magazine. And I remember, I can't remember what else was on there, but I remember Bible Black being on there and being like, wow, you know, I really, really liked it and everything. But, um, but even then, I didn't really turn my attention to Sabbath or Heaven and Hell until... 2011, 2012, maybe like after Dio passed away, anyway. But um, I did actually go to the um the tribute concert that they did at High Voltage back in 2010 when they had um Glenn Hughes and, and Yorn Land and everything. But even then, that wasn't really enough to make me take the leap and get into them. After I didn't pro- probably for another year or two, and then yeah, I got into the Dio era. I bought the album Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules, and I both really like them. Got into Dehumanizer a bit later, and then um. And then after, I think I made the jump to Aussie after buying a Master of Reality and uh, Volume Four, I believe. And I've I've got Paranoid and Vinyl. I've, I've quite I think I acquired that fairly recently, actually. But um, but I got into the like main well-known albums beforehand. Like I had no clue about Tony Martin or I, I know you're chronicling all that at the minute. But yeah, but 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 I got into Dio before I got into Aussie. But even then, like I. It took a long time for me to become like a, a diehard fan, which I, even now I haven't heard every album, but I'm a lot more um, fluent with them now and I know what I like and I know what I don't like as much. Both Eric and Dan will be speaking to me extensively about the albums The Devil You Know and 13. But of course, we have a lot of blanks to fill in before we get to that point. In the mid-1990s, as Sabbath were releasing the Cross Purposes album, one of the most popular alternative or rock festivals in the US was Lollapalooza, created by Perry Farrell of the band Jane's Addiction. By 1995, Sharon Osbourne had seen the popularity of Lollapalooza and wanted to get Ozzy onto the bill. Previous lineups had featured bands on the main stage such as Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ministry, Ice Cube, Alice in Chains, Primus, Dinosaur Jr., The Smashing Pumpkins, Beastie Boys, A Tribe Called Quest, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. You can kind of see that it was more alternative music leaning or maybe leaning towards what was cool at the time rather than leaning towards what might be considered an 80s relic in Ozzy Osbourne even though he'd had a massive album in the early 1990s. So I'll let Mick Wall pick up the story from here about Sharon trying to get Ozzy on the bill for Lollapalooza. Don't forget Ozfest was set up by Sharon and it's her telling me these stories because as, as she put it that prick Perry Farrell uh, when she wanted to get Ozzy on at Lollapalooza, said he wasn't cool enough. It's like, I'll fucking show you. And Ozfest became the most successful touring festival in America in the 90s. And Lollapalooza vanished. Um, this is a queen of the damned, my friend, you know, and also funny as fuck. Her mother was Irish. Hello. An Irish dancer. Hello. And her father was a Jewish mafia guy called Don Arden. That wasn't even his real name. His real name is Harry Levy. Um, this is one gothic uh, theatrical family with, with really serious, serious blood roots. 
I owe me is no fucking match for them, no, no, any of us, you know. Here's Philip Trummer with his thoughts on Sharon Osborne, Ozzy Osborne, Tony Iommi, and the power struggle and the relationship dynamic between the three. Yeah, because Perry uh, Farrell wouldn't let uh, Ozzy Osborne onto Lollapalooza because he said he was not cool enough. And didn't didn't she eventually book Chains Addiction? No, what happened was Jane's addiction to keep Lollapalooza irrelevant or big had to eventually play Lollapalooza again, reform to play it. And uh, that really tickled Sharon because that's pretty much what she did with Ozfest. Uh, man, these people. But um, she was an excellent, excellent manager for Ozzy. She always kept him relevant, even when his music was terrible. Um, and be that with uh, TV shows or what have you, just putting stuff out, Ozfest. She was, she was, she's a brilliant, brilliant uh, manager, probably one of the best. And, you know, to be honest, in this journey that you sent me on, I've, I've revised my opinions a little bit. I, I have a little more compassion for them and understanding of why she did what she did, because, you know, Tony Iommi wasn't always a very nice chap either. And, uh, I mean, reading, starting to read these books and, and, and learning a little more about the, the, the ins and outs of, of the personnel changes, of the personalities in Sabbath. I've always put Tony on a pedestal a little bit. You know, he's a riff master. He started to get very revered in the doom scene again in the 2000s. You know, you saw my, my hoodie, Praise Iomi, that, that son did. I mean, he was just considered the riff god and also kind of the creator of, of doom. And I think people just kind of never really analyzed that he wasn't always really this great guy either. I always thought, you know, Ozzy was a bit of a clown. And then Sharon was the cynical uh, business monster behind a lot of the bad things that happened to Sabbath. But a lot of it was uh, self-inflicted by Tony Iommi, who, you know, fired people quickly, not himself, of course, through other people, um, was a bit of a bully to his his bandmates and a prankster and, and he's just not really painted as a very nice guy and he really never shook his coke habit until much much later and i think that really uh affected a lot of the bad decisions the band, band made and if you can't fire your bandmates yourself face to face you try to do it to other people or just kind of stop talking to them it's very immature and you know i don't know how much uh, the drug habit had to do with it but um, I think that's also just, you know, an intrinsic personality uh, trait. And, uh, you know, Ozzy, he struggled a lot and Sharon kind of propped him back up. And again, she was just very business savvy. So when she saw an opportunity, she took it. You know, while I don't like Ozzy's solo career as much, um, I have given it a bit more of a, a, a re-listen these days. And, you know, it all makes a bit more sense now. So here we are in the mid-1990s, the Ozfest is up and running, although no Black Sabbath yet, but it was on the cards, presumably, that we're going to get the original Black Sabbath back together. They hadn't done anything in a year or two, and all of a sudden the phone rings, and it's Sharon Osbourne looking for Tony Iommi. Now, Tony Iommi covers this in his book in two paragraphs. You might remember Mick Wall called that book the biggest pile of shit he'd ever read in his life. But I'm going to read a passage from Tony's book. My journey through heaven and hell with Black Sabbath and the purposeful crosses. Just to see what he has to say. So, here's Tony's book. Starting on chapter 75, called The Love of My Life. Early in 1997, Sharon Osbourne called and said, Would you be interested in doing a few shows with Ozzy, or maybe a tour? 
I'm asking you first, and if you say yes, then I'll ask Geezer. It was supposed to be a casual thing, as opposed to involving lots of lawyers, so I said yes. Then she asked Geezer, and he said yes. I think she was under the impression that Bill would want to go through lawyers, and therefore it would be hard work involving him as well, so she didn't ask him. I asked her about Bill, but she said, no, we're going to use Mike Borden, Aussie strummer. Geezer and me were only going to do a few songs, and it didn't seem like it was going to be a big thing, so we agreed on doing it with Mike. The plan was for Ozzy to do his own set first, and then we'd walk on and close the show. Not unlike we'd done in Costa Mesa in 1992. It was a join you on stage sort of a thing. We agreed on a fee and did it. In May 1997 we started a five week tour of America for about 25 Ozfest shows. I liked it. It was good. And things were going well between me, Ozzy and Geezer. I think it was a bit of a trial thing anyway, to see how well we all got on again. Initially we didn't see a lot of each other. Ozzy would fly in later and arrive at the gig separate from us, and Geezer and me each travelled in a bus of our own. We also stayed at the best hotels, always the Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton's. It was okay. It was organised well. So yes, you might have noticed the thorny issue of Bill Ward being not involved in really what was the first Black Sabbath reunion since the Costa Mesa shows uh, back in 1992, which caused so much controversy. So... Let's see what Ozzy Osbourne says in his book, I Am Ozzy, about the same situation. We pick up the story where Ozzy is reflecting on the first Ozfest and Sharon having brought him the idea in 1995. So, on page 330 of I Am Ozzy. A year later, in 1996, we were ready. And we did exactly what we said we'd do. We started out in just two cities, Phoenix and Los Angeles, as part of my tour to promote the Osmosis album, the Retirement Sucks tour, as it was known. It couldn't have gone better. It was a monster from day one. As soon as it was over, Sharon turned to me and said, Do you know who'd be the perfect band to headline Ozfest 97? Who, I said. Black Sabbath, she said. What? Are you kidding me? I think Tony's the only one left, and their last album didn't even chart, did it? No, the real Black Sabbath. You, Tony, Geezer and Bill. Back together after 18 years. Yeah, right, I said. It's time, Ozzy. Hatchet's buried. Once and for all. I'd spoken to Tony only once or twice since Live Aid. Although we'd done a gig together of sorts in Orange County at the end of the No More Tours tour in 1992. I can't remember if it was me who called him first or the other way around. But once the word got out about a reunion, we had a few big talks on the phone. During one of them, I finally asked him why Black Sabbath had fired me. He told me what I already knew. That I'd been slagging off the band in the press and that my drinking had become unmanageable. But for the first time, I actually got it. I ain't saying it was right, but I got it, you know? And I could hardly complain. Because if Tony hadn't kicked me out, where would I be now? That summer, we went out on the road. At first, it wasn't the full original lineup. It was just me, Tony and Geezer, with Mike Borden from Fake No More, standing in on drums for Bill. I honestly don't know why we couldn't get Bill to play those first few shows, but I was told he'd had lots of health issues, including a bad case of agoraphobia. So maybe the rest of us were trying to protect him from the stress. By the end of the year, though, he was back with us to do two gigs at the Birmingham NEC, which were fucking phenomenal. Even though I've always played Sabbath songs on stage, it's never as good as when the four of us do them. Today, when I listen to the recordings of those shows, we put them out the following year on an album called Reunion, I still get chills. We didn't do overdubs or anything. When you put that album on, it sounds exactly as it did on those two nights. So... Ozzy kind of dances around the Bill Ward issue as well, which is interesting because this is something that would continue on and on throughout the years of 
Bill not being included, being kind of half included, being announced but then not showing up, and a war of words in the press between all sides, and the band members of Black Sabbath, specifically Tony Iommi and Ozzy Osbourne, either ducking the issue or coming out with some grand claims about why Bill couldn't participate, and Bill Ward routinely disagrees with these claims. We'll get to more of that when we discuss the album tour and the recording of the album 13, which Bill Ward obviously didn't participate in. But before we get to that, I'm going to read a passage from Martin Popoff's book, Born Again, Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s. Okay, so what happened was, there were some reservations by some or one or two or all members of Black Sabbath, says Bill, picking up the story on July 28, 1997, a little under a month after the OzFest 97 dates had wound up in Columbus, Ohio, without Ward involved. Ozzy apparently had some reservations about my sanity and my ability to play. At least, that's what I'm being told now. And of course, this would be based on quite a number of years ago. The only thing that I knew was I came out of rehearsal about three or four days before St. Patrick's Day, and I saw the announcement of the other three members getting together on MTV, and it blew me away. And I sent faxes immediately to everybody. Not necessarily to say, hey guys, can I be part of it, or anything else. I just sent faxes asking how they might feel about doing this without me. And I didn't get any responses at all. I got one kind of very terse telephone call from Sharon Osborne, who said that my services weren't required, and I thought, okay, whatever, I don't know what's going on, and it felt very uncomfortable. I went through a lot of hardship and a lot of pain behind this, and the guys went and did what they did. What happened since this is that I spoke to Tony, I'd say about two weeks ago, and he shared with me that everybody missed me, and I said, well, I wish you would have let me know, because I would have loved to have played. I would have loved it. When it comes to playing drums in Sabbath, I have no question that I would have loved to have played. It's never been a question for me. It's true that I was touring, but I wouldn't have done those tour dates had I known this in advance. So I could have gotten around that. So I went through three months of not feeling that particularly good, to be honest, even though I was on the road with my own band, which was great. But there was a shadow of loneliness that I did feel, reflects Bill. This was the first time in my life that I ever experienced going through something like this since we were kids, since we were teenagers. There's a special magic and a special union I've always felt with the three of them. When we do songs like Black Sabbath, that song meant so much to me. And to think that somebody else might be playing in my place, I thought, my God, where has it gone to? It hurt me. And Tony and I have been talking, and it's my understanding that if they ever get it together again, they want me to be part of it. And I said, if it does happen, then I'll be there. If you want me to be part of it, then I'll be part of it. The only thing that I know is probably what you know, is that I got my information from the press and from MTV and from websites. I've heard all kinds of reasons why I wasn't asked, and I'm looking at the missus and I'm going, man, this is like shite. It just wasn't particularly nice at all. Nobody's called me to say the real reasons why I wasn't invited. I don't get it. One of those things I did notice was Geezer's absence in the press. I didn't hear anything about anything in terms of any defamation of me, so I felt good about that, thinking that at least Geezer was supporting me but Tony and I are definitely talking. Bill Ward was eventually booked for a European tour in 1998, but unfortunately suffered a heart attack just before, so the band brought in Vinnie Appice to take his place. This probably didn't do Bill any favours in the long run. As mentioned in one of the passages I read there, they did two shows in the NEC in Birmingham with Bill Ward involved in 1997. These became the reunion album, which was released a year later. These were the original lineup of Black Sabbath playing again in their original hometown for the first time in almost 20 years. I spoke to Melissa from Metal Chat with Melissa about all these reunion shows with Ozzy, the exclusion of Bill at some of them, and her general feeling about these shows, having attended some of them herself. I was 
I went to all the Ozfest shows, but I have to tell you that I love Bill Ward, and it, you know, like I love, I love Cozy Powell, and and uh, Tommy Clafutis has done stuff with them, and he does a great job. But there's just something about Bill Ward, you know. I mean, I it's not, it's still not. If it's not the the original four guys, is it really a reunion? I asked Melissa if she ever did actually get to see the band with Bill Ward performing on drums. I did, I did. And that was great. I mean, the uh, although I have to say, you know, at that point, I think Ozzy's voice is really starting to kind of kind of go, you know, his voice is really not that great. I then asked Melissa how she felt about the reunion shows in general, you know, the various different Ozzy Osbourne fronted lineups who were performing sometimes with different drummers as somebody who'd been listening to Black Sabbath since the 1970s. Well, I mean, here's the thing. So when you when you go into that, when you're going to the quote unquote reunion shows, now it becomes almost nostalgia, right? It's 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 rem- reminding you of you know Children of the Grave or or War Pigs or Black Sabbath. You know, it's it's bringing you back. It brings you back to maybe the first time you heard that song or the first time you heard that album or whatever. Um, you know, so going to a show is a different sort of a different experience. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean. Ozzy wasn't in his best form. Here's Philip Trummer with his opinion on the Ozzy reunion. When they first got together, I thought it was a bit of a cash grab, and I'm sure it was. It was financially motivated. I'm sure Sharon orchestrated most of it. I can't say I blame them for it. it. Makes sense. You know, I mean, there was enough time in between. And, you know, Ozfest, all that kind of stuff never really appealed to me. Um, not that it came to Europe anyways. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of was listening to other stuff at the time. I still had my Sabbath records, but going to a show or, or keeping a track on what was going on was not something I did. Jonathan Headland from Maiden A to Z reflects on seeing the original lineup of Black Sabbath in the mid-2000s, and maybe their placement in his Mount Rushmore of rock, or at least the bands who he considers his favourites. That's why it was nice for me in 05 that I could go and actually see Black Sabbath just as I knew them. There was, it was very uncomplicated for me, you know, just uh, coming in 19 years old, it's Bill Ward, it's Giza Butler, Tony Omi, Ozzy Osbourne. But I would say very good at that time. I was like thrilled to the maximum, but it was also maybe just I'm seeing Black Sabbath, uh, you may not have too many shots at this, that kind of vibe, you know, and uh, definitely biggest band for me ever, together with Maiden and recently Thin Lizzy as well last couple of years, three years, that's the, the three biggest bands for me. So everything surrounding any of those bands, that's going to be interesting. And Deep Purple creeping up there as well. Also in the mid-2000s, Ozzy Osbourne became more famous for a reality TV show than he ever had for being a member of Black Sabbath or for his solo career, which had spanned from 1980 until 2002 when the reality TV hit sensation The Osbournes debuted on MTV. Now... I'm not going to linger too long on a reality TV show, other than to say there was a lot of Ozzy Osbourne stumbling around playing a buffoon and probably drugged out of his mind for most of it. He has even admitted as much himself in subsequent interviews. Philip Trummer reflects on the Osbournes. I should reference in the lead up to this comment by Philip, I mentioned how Josh from Talking Maiden can't stand Black Sabbath or Ozzy Osbourne solely based on the fact that there was an Osborne's reality TV show in the early to mid-2000s. I share his sentiment 100% in many, many aspects. I have voiced my own uh, controversial opinions on the Osborne's and the, the not 
Ozzy as a singer, but as a celebrity and everything that has kind of been built up around it, that's not for me. But in, for me, it does not diminish his work, his, you know, separate the artist from the arts, from his art, separate Ozzy as a solo artist from what he did with Black Sabbath. That's no problem for me. And it's bizarre, but I haven't thought about those people ever since, you know, that show was on the air. I've seen a few episodes. I probably saw the first season and it was just, it was depressing. It felt opportunistic. It felt just like a money grab. And, you know, I just, after that, I didn't want to watch it anymore. Because again, you come to the point where you're starting to dislike someone you liked. It's just better to turn it off and walk away. Anyway, that's quite enough of that. Let's get back to the music for a minute. So I've kind of jumped all over the place in the late 90s, early 2000s, but it is worth noting that Black Sabbath included two new studio tracks on the live album reunion. At the end of disc two, they included two new songs, one called Psycho Man and one called Selling My Soul. To me, these were kind of decent but unremarkable songs, but they were an attempt for Black Sabbath to get into a studio again and record some new tracks, which was kind of the plan when they got back together again in the late 90s. In 98 and 99, as discussed, they toured the summer festival circuit with Bill Ward, so all four original members uh, on the OzFest tour, and then following these appearances, they kind of went and worked on their own solo material, so around that time, Tony Iommi was releasing his first solo album, which was titled Iommi, and he included lots of different singers, one track including Ozzy Osbourne. Um, and Ozzy himself went on to work on his own next solo album, Down to Earth. Around 2001, though, they also entered the studio with producer du jour Rick Rubin to try and record an album. This didn't get particularly far, and the sessions were soon abandoned. Iommi said at the time, It's quite different recording now. We've all done so much in between. In the early days, there was no mobile phone ringing every five seconds. When we first started, we had nothing. We all worked for the same thing. Now, everybody has done so many other things. It's great fun, and we all have a good chat, but it's just different, trying to put an album together. Black Sabbath, with their original lineup, would go on to headline Ozfests in 2001, 2004, and 2005. There's a couple of things to note here. In 2004, it was the second occasion where Rob Halford had to step in on vocal duties for Black Sabbath, this time replacing an under-the-weather Aussie. Other than that, Ozzy was singing decently. You can look up some clips on YouTube. He certainly sounded better than he has in recent years. Then in 2005, Iron Maiden famously supported Black Sabbath in the second-to-headline slot on their American Ozfest tour. Uh, This was famous, of course, for the egging incident that has been well documented, where Bruce Dickinson was kind of running his mouth on stage each night saying things about reality TV and how Iron Maiden didn't require something like this to remain relevant in the present day. Um, And Sharon Osbourne took exception to this and coerced a group of people into throwing eggs at Iron Maiden while they were performing, cutting their sound multiple times. Anyway, this has been well documented by many other podcasts, uh, Iron Maiden podcasts specifically, but it's definitely worth noting. So, Black Sabbath are in the mid-2000s. The OzFest is kind of a regular thing. Black Sabbath are headlining it most of the time uh, with the original lineup. Things seem to be going well. But then, in 2005, after they did their festival lineups, uh, they got inducted into a couple of Rock and Roll Halls of Fame, the UK Music Hall of Fame, and then the actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then something happened that I don't think anybody expected. The band decided to release a new compilation called The Dio Years, which obviously focused on the Ronnie James Dio albums that he recorded with Black Sabbath. It featured songs from Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules, Live Evil and 
Dehumanizer. But in addition to being a compilation album featuring songs from those albums, which hadn't really been released up until this point, Iommi, Butler, Dio, and initially Bill Ward, although he eventually pulled out, decided to record some new tracks for this. That was The Devil Cried, Shadow of the Wind, and Ear on the Wall. So in 2006, after the Ozzy Osbourne-fronted version of Black Sabbath had been going strong for several years, even recorded some new tracks themselves, regular festival headliners, all of a sudden, Tony Iommi gets the itch to go back to his previous vocalist, Ronnie James Dio, and record some new music. And then what would happen afterwards was something completely unexpected in that the band would actually start touring. But before we get to that, I'm going to include some comments from my guests on the Dio Years compilation. One point worth noting here as well before we go ahead is that the Dio Years was released under the name Black Sabbath. So that is very interesting based on what's going to happen after this. Here's what Roy from Sabbath Bloody Podcast had to say in reference to the newly recorded songs for the Dio Years compilation. Yeah, yeah, no, I love those. Um, very, I know that they were worked on, it was just Iomi and Dio got together in the studio with, uh, like in Tony's home studio and kind of churned them out. And they definitely had a, a focused attack on it. I, I feel like with those, what are the songs? It's Ear in the, Ear in the Wall. Um, Shadow of the Wind, Shadow of the Wind, oh, so good. What's the other one? The Devil Cried, okay. Yeah, so each one of those was very good at hitting like a Heaven and Hell vibe on one and then a Mob Rules one and a Dehumanizer one. That's what I got from it. Like they each had their own lane. It wasn't like three of the same, same. Uh, and I really thought that was cool. I mean, um, and obviously those are actually officially Sabbath then, right? Because it was on the, the, the DO years. It wasn't labeled as Heaven and Hell as such, right? Not everybody felt as enthusiastic as Rye about the new Sabbath songs on the Dio Years compilation. Um, I remember uh, hearing them, and I don't think they were standout tracks. So I, I thought they were okay, but at the time, I don't know. They didn't. They didn't jump out at me, and I wasn't too too much paying too much attention. I didn't think they sounded Sabbathy. I thought they sounded like Dio. I just I thought they were more. I thought they were great, but I thought they sort of sounded more Dio-ish than I don't. Devil Cry kind of even has a rainbowy sort of. I don't know. I kind of, it kind of felt like I, you know, I'd, I'd rather have a new album and that's kind of, you know, eventually we did get that, which we're going to talk about in a bit, I guess. But, um, so I, but I, I don't think I, I think I did the, n- not particularly, I mean, I don't know if people these days remember that, but there was a thing called LimeWire. I think it was, and I, I think I, I think I downloaded, I think I downloaded the new songs because I already, you know, I, because I didn't want to, I didn't, for some reason I didn't want to buy the, the whole sort of, uh, best, I guess you could call it a best of album. Uh, or it might, might have been whatever, whatever, whatever it was that the kids were using. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I know, I, I know, I had the the, um, uh, the the three new tunes there. So I did, you know, I did like those. They were they were cool. But I felt like the same thing. I kind of felt when I the the, the reunion album with uh, the Sabbath reunion album with the two new, you know new new songs there. Um, a lot of times it's kind of. You know, when there's a best of or a live album or something with just one new song or a couple new songs, I don't know. That's always been kind of hard for me to get into because it feels like they're just sort of you know thrown together as an afterthought just to have something new on there. Uh, I think I think that the Dio stuff is better than the two tracks on the reunion album. I think. I, I remember I really liked. There's a sort of a breakdown riff in uh, Psycho Man. That's a re- really cool. That's that's my favorite. That I love that riff. I just wish the rest of the song was as good as that riff. Just yeah, just wish it would. There's more of it because it was. It's that's just a badass, you know, riff. And selling my soul doesn't really have anything like that in there. That's it's it's a, it's fine. Just you know, it's 
That's it, basically. For some music fans, including Alejandra, the Dio Years compilation was an introduction to the idea that Ronnie James Dio had even sung in the band Black Sabbath. I don't think I found out, I, I don't think I knew that Dio had been part of Black Sabbath until much, much later. Yeah, probably actually when the Dio Years compilation came out. And I was like, what? Dio wasn't, I mean, like, seriously, we, we, I, I didn't have a lot of, uh, of background. I didn't have a lot of uh, um Let's say uh, ways of of being updated on 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 certain things, you know. And so, um, yeah, I did find out uh, much much later. I was surprised, and I got that compilation, and I was just blown away. I mean, uh, it was it was great. I loved it. Before we would get any more new music from the reunited lineup, there was an announcement that the band would tour under the name Heaven and Hell in 2007. This would of course be followed by the album The Devil You Know, again released under the Heaven and Hell moniker. I spoke to Eric about how he reacted when he heard the announcement that the Ronnie James Dio lineup that featured on Mob Rules and Dehumanizer was going to go on tour again in 2007. I was very, I was very excited. I, uh, for me, that was a pretty big deal. Um, and I was, it's kind of those things where I was kind of surprised. It didn't seem like it was a big, it's, it seemed like it should have been a bigger deal. I, I, I don't know what I was, what I thought was going to happen, but yeah, I, I was really excited. I remember I was like hoping they'd come here. I'd seen Dio live once in like 2001 with his uh, solo band. That was really cool. They did Heaven and Hell that, then that, and they probably did one more. I can't remember what they played. I remember they did play Heaven and Hell, but, but to see him with, with Tony Omi and, and Geezer and, and Vinny even, uh, you know, I was, I was really excited about that. And then eventually they did announce they're going to be coming here. Well, yeah. Well, it happened was, uh, so that was in 2010, like the, the, when Maiden were doing their, uh, they're doing a tour as well. They're doing like a, like right before a final frontier came out, I think it was, or something like that. And unfortunately Dio, uh, Ron Dio's Dio passed away before that gig could happen. That was indeed unfortunate timing. Of course, it's never a good time for somebody to die, but I myself had a ticket for that same tour, Iron Maiden being supported by heaven and hell, but it was not to be. Anyway, moving on, we did get some great live shows from Heaven and Hell in the time period between when they first did their shows in 2007 to 2010, when Dio did pass away. And one of those in particular was the Radio City Music Hall show, which was released on live DVD and CD. Let's hear from Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast about this. My favorite Sabbath live album, which I speak about in my uh, latest episode that's up there, um, is the Heaven and Hell at Radio City. Uh, I just think the combined with the visuals that you do see, but the sonic, it's just a fabulous uh, tone all over. All of them are cooking. And the eye, when they go into eye, it's just like, I think, I think they do they even open with eye or something like that? I know there's a strong open. I think after all is what they come out to. And I'm like, whoo. Okay, so the album The Devil You Know was released in April 2009. Now, before we start talking about the music on the album, it seems like an appropriate time to bring back up the idea of why is this band going out and calling themselves Heaven and Hell instead of Black Sabbath? So there's many different people out there with many differing opinions. You heard from Joe at the start of the episode, and you also heard from Mick Wall. Uh, I went back to Mick Wall again and just asked him, was he certain that Tony Iommi did not own the name Black Sabbath? Because Joe seemed to think that he definitely did. And the lawsuit of the 2010s would suggest that he definitely did, to an extent at least, up until that point. Why, why do you think they changed their name to Heaven and Hell? They, they, the whole idea was it was going to be called Black Sabbath. You know, the compilation was Black Sabbath, the Dio years. And then, and then Sharon put the legal gun to their head, took the horse's head in the bed and went, no. And they went, all right then, and changed it to heaven and hell. 
Mick elaborates a bit more about the deal that was struck between Sharon and Tony in the 1990s for Black Sabbath to play the Ozfest. And I should note, when he says, it's about this, my friend, at the camera he was gesturing, making the finger rubbing sign for money, uh, just so you know. <laughs> if you think any of this has to do with playing fair or music, or you're deluded. Nothing wants to do with this, my friend. As it always, 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 always is. When they got back together with Ozzy, the deal was, this was when Bill Ward was doing the Ozfest and things and those shows, um, three quarters of everything to Ozzy, one quarter of everything else split between the three. Take it or fuck off. No, like, is that okay? It's like we're being very fucking generous here. And when Bill wouldn't go along with it, because in his mind, that's not the band, that's not four brothers together. She went, well, fuck off then. We'll get some bloke no one's ever fucking heard of and he can play drums. It won't make the slightest bit of difference. See Stephen Adler. See Izzy Stradley. See Queen without Freddie. You know, this is business, my friend. Business, business, business. And as David Arden, Sharon's brother, uh, who, who stayed with Don all through the years when Don and Sharon were at war, David, who I worked with later, said, you always used to say to me, you've got to remember Sharon is Don in a skirt. And Don was the mob-connected guy that had married, uh, managed Little Richard, Gene Vincent, The Animals, my friend, my friend, my friend. Don used to take a gun into meetings and put it on the desk without a word. Oh, come on in, Don. I said, why, why did you do that? He goes, he used to focus their fucking attention. And you could imagine it would. You could imagine it would. And then David told me they'd have a routine where um, they'd go into the meeting knowing that what they were going to ask for money-wise was so ridiculous ridiculously over the top the record company would have no choice but to say no don would destroy the office go fucking mad wave the gun have his heavies frighten the shit out of everybody desks upside down phones pulled out of the wall storm out and david would hang back david had a david had a very nice gentle demeanor he'd been to public school and stage school and it's ever so sorry, chaps. They go, they basically say, look, I'll make sure Don never comes back. And you only ever have to deal with me. But you've got to give me something for Don. I can't leave here now without at least giving him something. And then have gone in wanted gone in there wanting a million, ask for ten, and walk out with three. And then Don said, I said, what did you do after that? He, go, he goes, I would go to Annabelle's, this very, very royalty guy in London, order a bottle of the finest champagne and feel very, very good about myself. Now, Sharon learned at her father's knee. Sharon is a daddy's girl, a one million percent. Now, Sharon has ripped me off, fucked me over. I'm in a very good club full of loads of people that's happened to i've also seen her go off at someone and it's scary man it is truly truly scary 
So if you think for one minute she wasn't, as you put it, the puppet master, and she had an axe to grind with Iomi. She was been looking to bust his fucking face in the dirt for years, and she succeeded. Okay, I left that lengthy section in there just to establish that the Ardens slash the Osbournes slash Sharon Arden slash Osborne are clearly gangsters, as Mick has vividly illustrated with his stories about Don and about Sharon as well. So, I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of this, but I did mention to Joe Sigler when I spoke to him that I noticed strange things on the social media accounts of Black Sabbath. For example, if there is a new reissue of, let's say, Volume 4 coming out, or Sabotage, it'll be all over the official Sabbath channels, uh, such as their Facebook page, etc., and Twitter. But if there's a reissue of Heaven and Hell or Mob Rules, like there were earlier in the year, Tony Iommi will post about those privately on his own Twitter account, but there is no reference to these on the official Black Sabbath website, the official Black Sabbath Facebook, and so on. So, Joe Sigler had an interesting point on this, and I'm going to cut to that now. Well, first off, the official Facebook um, Twitter accounts, I does Black Sabbath have an Instagram account? I can't remember. I don't usually use Instagram, but I, I, I'm assuming if they do, um, that stuff is run by Sharon's office. Um, BlackSabbath.com, the website, Black Sabbath Twitter account, uh, and their Facebook page, and I have to assume Instagram, I'm saying this without checking, but I'm going to assume Instagram is involved in that. Um, those are run by Sharon's office. Sharon's office is not going to publicize Ian Gillen, Tony Martin, Glenn Hughes, Ray, Gill- uh, Ray Gillen. Well, you get the point. Um, they're not going to publish all that. So no, they're not going to talk about Heaven and Hell and Mop Rules reissues. That comes from the label, comes from Tony Geezer. Um, I didn't check to see if Vinny said anything. Vinny doesn't usually talk. I mean, he's on Twitter, but he doesn't talk that much. Um, so, so, and, and Ronnie Dio's stuff is run by his wife and out of, out of her office. So, so yeah, they're going to all talk about it. So that's why Sharon's, excuse me, not Sharon, sorry. Uh, that's why the official Black Sabbath social didn't talk about the Dio re-releases because it's run by Sharon's office. Um, we'll swing back to a point with that in a minute. Um, it, it all comes down to ownership of Black Sabbath. And before I get into this, I'm going to issue the same caveat that I issued on the Deep Purple podcast as, under the assumption you're going to use this recording. Um, this, what I'm about to say, is personal theory. Despite working for these guys, well, some of them anyway, um, I have no knowledge of this. In fact, so much so, ownership of the name Black Sabbath is the one subject that has gotten them legitimately pissed off at me. They did not like me inquiring about it. And I was told, I can't tell you exactly what was said, but basically it was shut up and stop asking that only in a much, only in a much more different choice of words. Um, so what I'm about to say is my own personal theory based on what I've seen publicly. And it's this, I think what's happened with black Sabbath from a legal slash ownership standpoint is similar to what's happened with pink Floyd after Roger Waters quit in the mid eighties. Um, if you remember in the mid eighties, Roger Waters, I mean, Floyd at the end of the, uh, after they made the final cut in 83, basically the, the, Rick Wright was fired and 
Mason, or not Mason, Waters and Gilmore were at each other's throats and whatever was left, the band was destroyed and Waters didn't want to do it anymore. He basically quit. And under the assumption that the remaining guys would not be able to continue because they didn't have him. Um, so he sued them over ownership of, of the name Pink Floyd, but that was his tactical error. He quit. In fact, he issued a, a statement to them saying, I quit. It was on paper. If you wanted to stop Pink Floyd, you should have stayed in the band and just never done anything again. But anyway, that, that's a sidetrack. Um, basically, the result of that lawsuit was that there are two legal Pink Floyds. If you look at anything released from 1987 onward, which would be Division Bell, Momentary Lapse of Reason, the respective live albums, any new compilation, anything new, not, not newly recorded material, but some new live album, some new compilation. On the bottom, it says copyright Pink Floyd 1987 Limited. But anything, anything else prior to that, which would be, you know, Final Cut, The Wall, Animals, Dark Side, all the other stuff says copyright Pink Floyd. There are two legal Pink Floyds. One carries the stuff without Waters and one carries the stuff with Waters. That is, a, now hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me get it all out. Um, you remember a lawsuit some years back, decade ago, I forget exactly when it happened now, maybe a little more, where Ozzy sued Tony over, over ownership, claiming he was making money off of merchandise, okay? Oh, we need to go even further back than that. You mentioned this in 1985. Tony bought ownership of the name from the remaining three guys because at that point in mid-85, Sabbath was effectively, it was not maybe, maybe not technically dead, but effectively dead. Um, so he bought ownership and he carried on by himself through all of that other stuff. Um, Tony owned Black Sabbath 100% from the mid-80s through till this lawsuit it does not mean sharon owned it for heaven and the heaven and hell period it does not mean um she got it in a ninety-seven thousand dollar loan to help tony out of legal jail tony owned black sabbath which was the entire point of the lawsuit between tony and her if if if, if sharon had control they would not have had to sue ozzy or sue tony over that um, now, the, the result of the lawsuit was locked by court order. I know. I tried to look into it. I have some friends who are lawyers who can find that crap, and they were unable to find what happened. So it's sealed. And after that is when I tried looking into it myself, and that's when I got told, piss off by Sabbath, stop asking me about that. Um, so basically... At that point, it, it's, it was all happy, happy after the lawsuit was resolved. So the fact that it's happy, okay, now here, where is it? These things here, Black Sabbath gathered in, uh, you can't see it due to the stupid background. Yeah, Black Sabbath live gathered in the masses, live the end, the 13 album, that end EP, all of the stuff that came out surrounding 13, um, you know, that includes the lives, the extras. If you go to the bottom of the credits and look at the fine print, it says copyright BS Productions Limited, which does not exist on 
anything else Black Sabbath, including the legal releases or anything else. It's only on 13 related stuff. What I think has happened is very similar to Pink Floyd. Again, I can't prove this. It is a personal theory. So I, there's still a very real chance that I'm wrong because it's a court-ordered lawsuit and they're not talking about it. So, excuse me, it's a court-ordered locked lawsuit resolution that I don't have informa- access to the information to, nor do you. Um, obviously, they know what's going on because they have a business they're running. And that's fine. I don't have to know. But my curiosity makes me go, why can't you? Know, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, but I think there's two legal Black Sabbaths. There's one that controls Black Sabbath with Ozzy Osbourne in it and another one for everything else. The other one that controls everything else is still owned 100% by Tony. If I am right about that theory, it would explain why the official social media does nothing with any of the other stuff because the Tony Martin re-releases are still coming too. Um, despite, despite fans assuming they're not, they're still coming when they come, you know, official social media will not post about it. Well, I don't know about you, but I find this stuff fascinating and the two legal black Sabbaths theory does tend to explain quite a lot of what has been going on over the last few years. But it doesn't really explain how Iommi, Butler and Ward got stiffed on their payoff for the Ozfest and presumably further Ozfests that followed. Maybe it was because Sharon was organising the gigs under the Ozfest banner and she could pay them whatever she liked. It's, it's intriguing to me and the behind the scenes machinations of all of this stuff is just as interesting to me as the music. But we do need to talk about the music at some point. Just before that, I'm just going to give you some other people's opinions on all this. And just like Joe said, these are just opinions as well of what other people think about this whole mess of the various different methods of promoting Black Sabbath and the concept that there might be two legal Black Sabbaths as well. I mentioned this to Eric from Maiden A to Z. This is what he had to say. I think, you, I think you've told me this. That's, that's really weird. That, makes, that seems very complicated. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's kind of, I mean, I, I guess I, it's weird. And it, it seems like something they could, try to work around somehow to make because it seems ridiculous to that you know that if they re-release let, let's say they did like a which i'm assuming it had some point has happened if they do some kind of anniversary like we're going to do a huge box set of like the the uh the born born again thing if they want to do that so the, the black sabbath it seems like as a whole would benefit from people knowing about that so why wouldn't you know if the facebook page be able to just you know you know fucking post a link to the to the pre-order. I mean, it wouldn't take any, it doesn't take anything away from them. Um, I, I think it's silly when that kind of stuff gets, gets in the way with, you know, when business gets in the way with the, the, uh, I, I don't know if I call it, you know, Facebook post art, but you know, it gets in the way of the music and the, you know, it, 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 that's, it seems like that's something that they should be able to, this shouldn't be a problem, but you know, it, it also sort of a side note, it really annoys me. I, that last time I was on blacksabbath.com, if you go in their discography, all the stuff that's not with Aussies, none of it's on there, which is ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, I thought it was kind of, you know, I, so I, I thought that bit was sort of silly, but it's a, it's a, the name suits the music. And it's also, it is very different from, from Black, from like the classic kind of like, you know, Paranoid and Iron Man, that kind of stuff. So it, it probably is a good idea in hindsight. They did do it under a, a different name. I just, I just wish they had time to do more. Yeah. And then the band spins it as like, oh, we didn't want to be associated with that. Uh, we wanted to do our own thing, but we called it, fucking 
album that we're most known for and the song we're most known for. No, uh, they weren't fooling anybody. It probably, um, with as far as hooking into the masses, it, it, you would have had to be a little bit in the know to know that, that that was what was going on. And obviously, Ozzy was such a huge, is beyond what Sabbath even at that point as recognizable money draw. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to shine much light on that stuff because I get confused with all that shit as much as the next person. And, um, I, that's kind of what I want to start doing on my podcast is dissecting some of that stuff that confuses the fuck out of me because <laughs> the timelines, it's a massive amount of time to, to, to dissect and, and the managerial stuff goes all over the place. Okay. So onwards and upwards, let us talk about, finally talk about the music on the album, the devil, you know, released in April, 2009, preceded by the single Bible black. I'm going to go to Dan Mortimer for his thoughts. Dan talks about buying a heavy metal magazine in early 2009, which featured a bonus CD containing the track Bible Black. And this is how he found out about Heaven and Hell. I remember there being an interview feature in the in the magazine. And I am, um, well, first off, I, I wasn't even aware that Dio was a part of Black Sabbath. And I, I only learned that from the interview. And um, I remember like being like struck at how old they were and like, and like the quality of the recording, like, the fact that Dio could like sing like that right up until the day he died. I remember thinking, Oh, you know, fair enough to him. And but, uh, but yeah, I found it really to be a really heavy track. Um, I had quite a few mates who were like getting into metal at the time, and like uh, we'd go around each other's houses. And I remember putting it on YouTube a few times, and like they they quite enjoyed it and everything. And when I told him about, well, I hadn't even really got into them yet, but I I knew that I'd want to pursue them eventually. But but yeah, I, I didn't I didn't listen to the whole album until 2011, 2012, maybe. I, I would have been in in college at the time I remember and um I think I I started off with that album actually The Devil You Know and uh yeah pretty good album on the whole like quite a lot of good tracks in it I remember at the time like really liking um uh Double the Pain uh Follow the Tears Breaking Into Heaven and Bible Black and there are a few more which I, I liked and everything and it, it was enough to make me get into like backtrack more and then get into the album Heaven and Hell and then Mob Rules etc I started following them a little more when, when that announcement was made. I remember I actually bought it in Tallahassee, Florida at a record store. I was like, oh, wow, this is out. Let me check this out. And uh, I couldn't believe what I heard. My goodness, what a heavy album. I was like, Tony, where were you hiding these riffs? And the performance by Ronnie, you know, older now, more mature, a little different than his, his, his early work. I, the whole album from start to finish is just massive. I asked Philip how he would compare this version of Black Sabbath, who released the album The Devil You Know, with the previous version that we had that released a full album, which was the Tony Martin lineup. Here's what he said. Um, I, I, try to, I, I try to look at it as two separate entities. Um, the sound, again, is now very different. We don't have those, you know, classic metal and, and, and rock riffs. We have a whole different kind of song structure again that, that kind of reminds you more of some of the early early Aussie era stuff even because the riffs are, are incredibly heavy and, you know, slow material, um, dark again, in it's a different way, but wow. Yeah. I, I never get tired of this album. And I, I still, when I put it on now, it sounds so fresh and so intense. I, I barely believe they made such a great album this late in their career. Uh, yeah. Opener, Adam and evil, uh, Bible black for sure. Uh, the turn of the screw and eating the cannibals and the follow the tears. I mean, you could 
you could breaking into heaven the closer uh, i have to say there's not a weak track on here i mean the, the delivery of the vocals is 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 amazing and and it, it lodges the songs in your in your in your brain because you know the way uh, ronnie accentuates uh the song titles are in inside the lyrics for almost every song here you know atom and evil you know reading from the bible black it, it it goes in there and they're cool they're again they're these cool words they're very metal you know bible black i mean how can you not how can you forget that even rock and roll angel which may sound a little cheesy um the, the, the way he delivers that line it's just so good it just stays with you yeah yeah i like it um if you do put it in the catalog in the canon with the with the three other albums uh it's got its own vibe too it's kind of a little bit more dark um evil kind of sinister which i dig um there's a couple of tracks that i don't know if it's geezer or dio but the humor that's in it uh, in the titling of some of these tracks like turns me off like uh eating the cannibals or whatever yeah there's a couple of tracks that i don't revisit just because of the vibe of it but there's also a couple of tracks follow the tears is one of my favorite dio sabbath tracks um it's like the, the intro of that one is like killer man like cashmere i guess kind of but uh, it, it it's epic yeah epic doom at its finest the reason i really wanted to do the episode is not like i had pick and choose from tons of episodes but this was a suggestion and i think it was a good one and the reason is mainly uh, like the peculiar combination of these albums and their timing and their personnel it's something i think is completely unique in the metal world to have uh, you know two albums same um, well, same band by principle, I guess, you know, Tony Ayomi, Giza Butler is on these two records. And um, then two legendary frontmen, one on each within such a short span. It's almost like Maiden would go back now and make a Diano album and he would sound as good as he ever did. And it would come out in close conjunction to Senjutsu. And, you know, it's just a weird juxtaposition. Weird indeed. Uh, sorry, I lost a bit of Jonathan's audio there and I just couldn't cut him off mid-sentence so I left in the inaudible part. <laughs> I'm not sure why. But um, I did pose the question to Jonathan then. As he mentioned, you know, we went from Dio to Ozzy and two of the classic singers coming back one album after the other. And I asked, did he consider or does he consider The Devil You Know to be a Black Sabbath album? Um, I guess first off, it doesn't really matter, not to me. But uh, I mean, secondly, no, I did not. I kind of, you know, that's the thing about marketing, I guess. You think you're immune to it. You think, I know more about these guys than a PR officer <laughs> or whatever is in charge of that. But it was marketed as heaven and hell. And I saw it as heaven and hell. I didn't even think that you know, they should be called Black Sabbath or anything as such. And I guess I also enjoy the fact that they didn't have, like they completely cut the connections to, to the past of the band in that way, because I never liked Dio doing Aussie. That was terrible to me. And I've said before on your show, best metal singer through the ages, but his Aussie sucks. <laughs> it's a terrible Aussie. I think uh, Ian Gillen, better Aussie. Uh, Glenn Hughes, better Aussie. Uh, first and foremost, Rob Halford, best Aussie. <laughs> like, he, he can really do Aussie. That's weird. They're not that similar, but he really can. Maybe it's the Brummy thing, Birmingham. That sounds more epic, more metal, you know, the, the black country um, beyond the realms of death. I asked Jonathan, was he listening to the album when it came out in 2009? Not the album, but a few songs of it, because I saw them live, Sweden Rock Festival, Blekinge. That must have been 09, I think. But honestly, I didn't know there was an album. 
So maybe then we get into marketing a little bit again, because it was way later, you know, when uh, doing things like this, that, okay, it's a full album, actually. I kind of missed that. I knew they did a couple of new songs. And I was sure that was it. Two, three new songs, uh, Bible Black, I knew. Um, you know, they played a couple of them live. I think Fear might have been played live too. So yeah, um, I did know about Heaven and Hell. I saw them live and it was an incredible show. And I was hyped, you know, we didn't know uh, Dio was close to death at that time. And I was hyped. What can these guys do in the future? Is this Black Sabbath now? I'm very happy. Like I prefer Ozzy to do his thing by now. Like I don't want him back in the band. We'll get to that. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, uh, so good live. And for me, like the pinnacle of this whole period is Radio City Music Hall. Amazing acoustics in that uh, venue. Amazing performance. Like oh, it's one of the best ever recorded musical things. <laughs> Everything. It's like top one in music. Almost, you know, it's really good. It's really, really good. That's my thing, and that was that came about earlier. But I really, really I think three or four years ago, I rewatched it and um, with a friend here on my on my projector with my sound system and all that, and really loud, really loud. Neighbor complains loud, and that was amazing. I recommend that to anyone who has a decent sound system at home. Play that one and play it absurdly loud. Uh, preferably from the DVD because it's good audio quality on that. So yeah, that's that's what I remember. That's my past with uh, this era, I presume. Well, yeah, I, I was very excited, and also one of my one of my best friends uh, is also a huge uh, Dio fan, and uh, he's a huge Sabbath fan, but he's especially a big fan of that era. So we were both very excited, and he, uh, I think he was actually the one who who uh, like sent me the what is probably a blabbermouth.net article at some point, like like oh you know this has happened. Whatever it was, and that, you know, yeah, so we were both very excited about that. And some of those, he was the first one to actually play me some of it. I think also he did one of those things. Probably not LimeWire, whatever, whatever they were using. And you know, because it, it, something had leaked, so I got to hear like, I, I think it was, uh, I can't remember which one it was at this point. Bible Black, and maybe one, yeah, and that one I got to hear a little before, and that, that got me really excited. And also, it just sounded like I hadn't heard anything he'd recorded in quite a while, but you know, you. There's you wouldn't necessarily know this was a you know a, a new album in the sense that his, everything sounds his voice sounded amazing you wouldn't he hasn't aged very his voice sounds you know like it sounds just as good as it did on the you know dehumanizer or anything like that um, so yeah I was very excited and I I let's see, I know I did end up getting it well, that was this was so I have it here on CD somewhere I don't have it on vinyl because they didn't really do vinyl uh, that was just that point just too bad now it's probably impossible to get a hold of I haven't tried but you know. What about early thoughts on the first release single, Bible Black? It's dramatic, I think. Kind of when he opens the story in the beginning, he's, he's given this little scenario and shit, you've read the Bible Black. You know, a book on the, a book on a shelf or I don't know if it's on a shelf or uh, bed, bed. What the hell is that? My English fails me. Bed, uh, bedside table. Yeah, that's what I imagine it to be. We have a weird word for that in Swedish, but yeah, bedside table and... Um, or, a, or a, you know, a shelf or something like this. And then someone finds this Bible black and then it's like, shit, you read it. Almost like Pandora's box type thing. Like now it's too late. Uh, and uh, I think it's good, but it's not uh, one of the better on the album. Uh, I think it's just a good song. And uh, again, with the marketing, I mean, it, they should have been able to reach me at, uh, at that age, you know, early 20s. I was online. And I was a big metal fan. So the fact that I missed that there was an album coming out, something to be said for that, because no one missed that 13 was coming out. 
So, so some, I think they did somehow they failed in their marketing, or I was too preoccupied with, I don't know, Opeth or something. It could have been just me for sure. Like, uh, I guess I, I didn't engage as much in, in that type of metal community at the time. I think it was more local, maybe, and more Swedish oriented actually at the time. Uh, like, must have probably been my most domestic music period in my whole life because normally I tend to go for English, British, American stuff, you know, like uh, in rock anyway. I asked Jonathan if he felt Ronnie James Dio's lyrics could come across as somewhat anti-religious, not just in a song Bible Black, but in other songs throughout his career as well. Yeah, well, he was never anti-religion in the way that I don't enjoy, which is just like, it's a book of fairy tales written by old people. You know, well, it's a fair point, I guess. It is kind of, but uh, he was more, you know, he was interested in religion. Really interested in it. He called the Holy Diver a spiritual song, a song of religious nature. Just you know, not on earth as usual. It's a, it's a way to keep it out of the politics. But yeah, uh, critical in a sense, you know, found addiction. But I would say is that it's critical to man more so than religion. So you know that it uh, the uh, it kind of hones in or solos in on the fact that maybe you just have you need this fix, like. You're actually not trying to become a better person. You're not trying to connect with a higher power. You just need a fix, uh, you know, when he drops addiction into the picture. So the criticism, again, for me, is more towards people than towards religion. Many crutches out there. So, I mean, it's just it's people, you know, kind of. So someone posted the other day on my Facebook uh, about monkeys and, and, and people. And they were like, if there was a monkey that would steal all the wealth of the entire monkey population, uh, we would study that and... Uh, you know, if it's a human, we put him on the cover of Forbes, which I guess is a fair statement. But I just had to add, I met a bunch of monkeys hanging out on, on a cliffside in Indonesia once. And the fat monkey was eating all the food available. And if we gave the thin monkeys food, he would come and by violence, by force, take that piece of food. So, and there's no, I added, there are no scientific uh, like troubleshooting going on here. They don't see that as weird. It's quite natural. And that brings back like my criticism, I guess, to man. It's it's interesting because like um, I, I know my my parents, for instance, or at least my mom, definitely thought they were you know Satanists based on I don't, I'm not really sure what you know. Again, there's if you, there's nothing really there, but like, I think that there's as a you know parent, especially a you know, nervous sort of Christian mom, everything is probably you know you know everyone's Satanist. If you take like after forever is one thing, but if you jump over to like what's it called under the sun. That's that is there. There's definitely some stuff in there that seems um, maybe more not satanic by a stretch of the imagination, but definitely more. I'm not even sure atheist is the right word because there's a line about uh oh uh, something about I'm gonna I'm gonna actually I'm gonna look it up just so I don't get it wrong. But there's 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 a few things in there that would definitely to me sound like someone who's again sort of tried religion uh, and then and then you know sort of fall out of love with it. Let's see. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I want, I don't want no preacher telling about the God in the sky. No, I don't want no one to tell me where I'm going to go when I when I die. Yeah, that seems someone kind of fed up with the, you know, with religion in some to some great some degree at least. But otherwise, I guess there's it, it probably it has a lot to do with just the fact of them being accused of, you know, being fucking Satanists all the time. You probably get kind of that probably gets old after a while, um, you know. And not that there's anything if they were. I mean, I, I you know, I mean, they, they're definitely. I think that is. There's probably quite a few, probably more so now that musicians that probably are, you know, quote unquote, real Satanists, but they, they weren't, they weren't, they, you know, they weren't these guys. 
All right, so interesting comments there from both Jonathan and Eric about Black Sabbath's anti-religious stance or possible Satanism throughout the years. Uh, I asked Jonathan about the song Atom and Evil staying on the religious theme. The lyrical part, pretty cool. Obviously a reference to Adam and Eve, right? Uh, Lyric-wise, well, I think so. Could you have Adam and Eve, Adam and Evil? Oh, yeah. Idiot Eureka moment, they call that, don't they? <laughs> yeah. That was, that was the first thing that occurred to me when I saw the title. Oh, okay, right. It's a biblical retelling then, but, but repurposed. Okay. So that, had, that opens with a very kind of like a very typical, you, can, you, you, you know who's playing guitar on this thing, where it opens that, you know, boom. And that's, that's you know, so you immediately know what you're listening to. Um, it has it's sort of a slower kind of uh, number. And the chorus has that kind of, there's a cool melody line on the chorus. Uh, which you don't, you know, the, usually Tony Omi tends to be more, more riffy, but there's a really cool, I can't remember where it is. I think it's in the chorus behind the vocals there. It's um, very not typical of what you would sort of expect from Mr. Omi. Um, and just a kind of a cool, you know, I always love a good uh, sort of, a, you know, Adam and Evil rather than Adam, you know, Adam and Eve. That's, that's kind of fun. I kind of like a good uh, pun. It's, I think it's an easy target as well for metalheads. Like it's easy to go for religion because uh, no one's going to fault you for that in the West anyway. I mean, it's a whole different story if you're in Iran or something and you do that. That's really out there and edgy and dangerous. But in metal, it's very safe. Like, uh, you know, middle-class kids bashing on religion. It's not, it's not courageous. It's not brave. But if you do it this way, you criticize it with uh, a ton of... Uh, good English and obviously good thinking behind it. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, putting your mind to it. I really like it. So, yeah, great lyrics. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, like Sabbath, like they're in, a, in many ways, like I, I know people call them the first heavy metal band, which they, they probably were, but they, they're probably the first ever doom metal band anyway. And um, you can never expect like happy, clappy lyrical content from them. Like even when they had Ozzy and Tony Martin and everything, um, I don't know where they actually like stand on religion or or what Dio did personally, but I know he came from an Italian American family, didn't he? And like they're normally very religious out there. Like maybe Dio had a more critical outlook. Like I don't know. Did, I imagine he probably wrote the lyrics for the album, did he? Dio. And um, like I said earlier, like I'm not too familiar with like the solo material, but but it's definitely like a departure from you know the usual kind of like witching and wizardry and dragon type of lyric lyrics and everything, but. In terms of it being an opening track, I think it was a bit bit ploddy, really, and um, maybe Fear would have been better suited to being an opening track. But um, but but it's good, you know, like a big heavy riffs, um, confident vocals, and yeah, had a bit of a strange fade ending, I think. But yeah, quite quite a good song. I mean, I didn't over analyze like the lyrical content, but yeah, a pretty pretty good song on the whole. Like maybe not not suited to be an opening track, in my opinion. Yeah, but but um, I did notice like there were quite a few unbiblical references which came up. Um, obviously, with Bible Black, um, in Fear, you've got the lyric um, "If there's a hell and Satan had a daughter, um, he must have sent her here to hide the flame." And there was another one, another lyric which um, I made a note of that creeps up after. Um, oh, it was, I think it was from Bible Black actually. Like, um, I've breathed religion, but the light made me blind. Or I've taken in religion, but the light made me blind. Like very, very critical look at religion. Anyway, like they are, they are, they are actually. I think they are good lyrics. Like uh, you know, quite often when it comes to like writing heavy metal, like you, 
you, you, you have a habit of like tending to like sound a bit edgy, you know, and a bit like, Ooh, you know, but I, I think there is a bit of, bit of um, substance behind them and that they are, they are good. But yeah, they are. Yeah. I, I did notice like the, um, the uh, religious critique anyway. Yeah. Probably not in every song, but, but, but they pop up in a fair few, don't they? I have other favorites on the album other than fear, actually not Bible back or Atomic Evil. Like the start of the album for me is more, maybe the, the weaker part of the album. Not that it's weak though. It's still good. Like uh, this is a seasoned lineup at this time as well. Uh, like th- they know what they're doing. For me, this album, that's, it's the end of it. The last three songs and they encompass quite a fair bit of music. I think uh, almost like, um, yeah, it's north of 20 minutes, I think at the end there, something like that. I think those three are perfect for this lineup, perfect for this time. It starts with Follow the Tears. It's just so heavy. It's just so good. <laughs> I don't even have like a, an intelligent way to, uh, to praise the song. It's just so heavy and good. <laughs> you know? What the hell? Yeah. Heavy and good. Like Follow the Tears. It's menacing too. I guess that's a slightly more advanced way to, to praise it. Uh, perfect tempo, Vinny at his best, Ronnie at his best, what a hook too. I would have needed that hook at the start of the album. Everyone can catch on to that, right? I will admit for context that I did not cop on to the fact that Adam and Evil was a pun or a play on words for Adam and Eve either. So I didn't mean to land you in it there, Dan. I just thought the conversation flowed quite nicely uh, between the three of you there. It's like almost as if you're on the same call. But now we're moving on to follow the tears. So you've heard Jonathan's comments there. And I posed this question to my guests if they thought that the song lyrics might be about the breakup of Black Sabbath in 1992, specifically the line from Dio, and if you want to know where I've been hiding all these years, follow the tears. Some people might say Dio disappeared from the limelight in the 1990s and early 2000s. He was obviously still releasing albums under the Dio banner, but this certainly raised his profile to heights it hadn't been at since maybe 83, 84, 85. So this was just my take on it, and I posed this question to my guests. Maybe, or I read them more like uh, this guy that is, uh, he's realizing that he's not great influence on people. So follow the tears, kind of, that's the way I went. I left those, I left that behind uh, wherever I was, you know. Uh, I don't think that would be um, autobiographical. I think it's more of a character portrait of sorts, but I haven't read into the lyrics deeply. I've just listened to the song and felt the lyrics. So you may know more. Well, the first off, the, 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 the song, if we just talk about the music, the song, um, you know, has a kind of cool kind of organ thing in the beginning, which I, which I like very cool. Uh, when you, you know, organ is one of the things that can be, can be um, either work very well or sound ridiculous here. It works. Uh, <laughs> I'd say. So yeah, come lie on a bed of nails and slumber. Rise up, but the hands all pull you down. So yeah, this just seems like a pretty gloomy song. And like you know, and you know, the, like you said, so we want to know where we've been hiding all these years. Follow the tears is also very not particularly upbeat lyrics. But again, what could you know? What do you, do you have a theory or do you have a thought of what what these are what these are about or what's he saying here? So I suggested my theory to Eric about the breakup of the 1992 lineup of Black Sabbath could possibly be the inspiration for this song lyrically. That would make sense that you might have be, have those kind of feelings about the situation because that is a very, I, I think that's a good analysis. I mean, I mean, even if that's not what the song is about, I'm, I'm fairly sure he was, you know, he, he would agree with those kind of 
that sentiment about, you know, they, you know, it would it, it, like, like, you know, it's, if they're like, yeah, this is great. We should do, you know, we should have been doing this, you know, for years. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's not my fault. We're, we haven't been doing it guys. You know, but you, even, even if you kind of, you know, let go of a lot of bitterness, maybe he's still stuff. He kind of felt he would want to, he wanted to say it to some degree uh, and he got it out in the song rather than having, you know, an argument with them. Uh, but I, I kind of agree. There's a lot of, you know, they, they could have been doing a lot of really cool stuff. And there's probably a lot of wasted years that didn't end up happening because of this. Well, the first, my first favorite one was Double the Pain. It starts with this kind of, like, this cool bass intro that has like a, some kind of effect on it. It sounds like almost like a wall pedal. And that kind of, stood, that kind of got my attention. Otherwise, the riff-wise, like I say, it, it, it's like, it's, it's um, you know, nothing trailblazing. It's just very, very kind of Tony Omi kind of riffs, but just very cool Tony Omi riffs. Lyric-wise, you know, the waters aren't particularly deeper. I don't think even, again, he might, he's probably, he's probably meaning to him that I'm not, you know, I don't see, but I think, I think Mike's, I think the, regardless of what the lyrics, regardless of everything, the chorus riff, the, the, uh, the thing that comes after uh, he's strong, he, he will survive that. There's a, there's a very Tony Omi kind of thing where I think it's like sliding power chords. He does that quite a bit. Like he goes up to like the 12th fret and slides down to like the uh, seventh fret via the ninth fret or something. And that's a very him thing to do. Yeah, lyrically, I've like there are a couple which make me laugh. Actually, I made a note of one. Um, Double the pain. Let's kick him for a while. I thought right. <laughs> that one. That one stuck uh, stuck out to me. But uh, yeah, about a guy getting getting off on being hurt. You know, some people are into it, aren't they? I'm, I'm not really into it. But I don't know. I don't know if Dio is like singing from experience or uh, putting himself in the mind of another guy. But. Uh, but funnily enough, um, coming back to the album earlier this week, I, I found that track a bit filler compared to a few more others on the album. But when I got into it, I really enjoyed that track. I still do now, but like, I look at it more in a humorous type of way now. Eating Cannibals is really cool. I was listening to that. Uh, it's, it's fun because last time I listened to this album was quite a while ago. So when I, did, when I started preparing for this, it was fun to listen to the, you know, revisit it and I sort of could hear it in the you know like like i had not you know there's there's songs on here that i kind of no yeah never wear last time around you know it was fine i didn't think about it this time but today like oh my god how did i not you know get this one before this is really cool you know the um but if we go to go back to eating the cannibals that's that's a great one it's like also like it's cool kind of more up tempo uh deal they didn't really do this kind of stuff with ozzy very much it feels like but they did it quite a bit with deal like you got like turn out the night and um oh, let's see what else is there die young is pretty you know fast too but Aussie, you know though the aussie stuff was a little, felt like it was a little you know slower uh so this feels like a very kind of typical and i say typical in the best way possible you know like you could this, this song could have been on one of the like on on, on the mob rules or or even heaven hell maybe everywhere yeah um and that had a rhythm to me that kind of threw me into the world of uh, falling of the edge of the world, which is one of my favorite songs by Dio Sabbath. It had a bit of that, so I think they could even maybe consciously have gone for that. You know, like what other types of songs do we do? And this is one type we do. Uh, we'll get more into that on thirteen for sure. But <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like it a lot. Cool, cool, great vocals. Love his old man voice here. Uh, cool tempo after Fall of the Tears. Exactly what you need. I'm a stickler for sequencing. Like it's very, very important to me because albums are not a collection of songs. Albums are albums. So the order the songs come in is important. 
And here you have a, like a super one, two, three punch at the end. And this is the second punch. So I guess this would be the left, the quick left jab or something like that. Great tune. What about the closing track on the album, the curiously titled Breaking Into Heaven? Yeah, love it, love it. And I see in this, I, I guess I'm often leaning towards seeing portraits of characters rather than autobiographical stuff when I'm listening to music. Maybe it comes from like my, my start with the Beatles, also portrait there in the lyrics, but, um, or, you know, character portraits, that is. But uh, this song I see as a trickster's anthem, you know, like, I wasn't allowed into heaven, but I'll break into heaven, that kind of thing. And it just has that, uh, like, it has balls to it, you know, again, this, this tune. It's just like, I'm not going to listen to your rules, because who are you to come up with them? I'm breaking in. Almost like Rage Against the Machine, we don't need a key, we'll break it, you know, at that point. And um, musically, yeah, it's a bit doomy. And, but it has the bigness, bigness, that's a weird word. It has, but it has that, you know, like uh, uh, breaking into heaven, almost a radio quality to, to that hook. Uh, which, again, I need those hooks for this type of music. I do. Like, I listen to some music where I don't need hooks per se, but here I do. And that would be my criticism towards um, the devil you know that I would have loved more of these type of hooks earlier on, on the album. Because you have mob rules, you have those, you know, all through the whole album, you have those, and it's, it's important. And um, the final track, uh, Breaking Into Heaven, I don't know if it was like the final um, album that Dio ever recorded on, but, but if it was, I think that that's a really, really good way to end that career. Seeing as we've established that the opening track, Adam and Evil, is a play on words for Adam and Eve, could the final track be some kind of reference to Adam and Eve breaking into heaven? Maybe a nice way to bookend the album, thematically. If you want to look at it conceptually, yes, I would say that works perfectly well. I don't think it's a concept record, but it's fun too to like kind of superimpose a concept onto a record. And maybe even as afterthought. I like afterthought. I do that with my own stuff. Like I write a bunch of lyrics and then I decide what they mean. And that's kind of, you, know, you shouldn't do that, I've heard, but I do. And uh, when the album is done, I look back at it. I've done a few, uh, three or four albums, I think I've released. And I look back at them after. Like, okay, what's the concept of the record, really? Yeah, I've definitely found that. Yeah, I've definitely found that before. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I do write lyrics. And they, they typically tend to be about like a book I've written or a film I've watched or, um, you know, out my own head, really. But, but when you read them back to back, like you, you can definitely see like a, um, a theme running through them not to blow my own trumpet or anything but i think if you if you are writing like and then you compare everything you've done like you are going to see a few like similarities aren't you and everything but oh, and there was a shock when he died too because then i was on blabbermouth and i mean that obviously reached me and that was like fuck oh shit he wasn't that old and he looked very animated last time i saw him and many of my uh friends in the Swedish music scene that had met him, everyone was like, yeah, this was a guy to talk to, you know, he could just sit there and drink beers with you or, or smoke weed with you. Like that was what he was all about that, you know, like uh, conversation. He was a fan of conversation. So, I mean, imagine having him on either of our podcasts or something. Ah, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah. Dearly missed. Yeah. I think we'd have, I think if he'd not died, we'd have had, you know, maybe at least, at least maybe one or two or maybe even three, you know, albums in this time. It seems like they were, you know, uh, th these guys work very well together. It feels like, uh, 
well, you know, we have, there's another album we're going to talk about that I think maybe was harder to do. Uh, but I think, I think that we, uh, you know, had he, had he, had he not died, we'd have gotten some really cool stuff or that had they started earlier. We still would have gotten some cool stuff as well. Um, there's definitely, he had definitely more in them put it that way. That was my view on it. That was my, also my first thought when he died was actually, fuck the lineup is dead. <laughs> that was the first thing because obviously I didn't know him personally and I don't, I don't put that type of emotions into, I guess, quote unquote, celebrities dying. But I was like, shit, they were on a roll. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And that rarely happens when, you know, when, when a musician dies, usually it's towards the end of their output. You know, they, like they have less to say at that point. Uh, Jim Morrison even, he died, he died young, but he was already kind of on his decline in terms of, you could tell that he was kind of, uh, I guess stamp, he was stamping out. He was zoning out, leaving life. Uh, Dio wasn't like super animated and everything. And uh, I, I foresaw many good gigs in the future. So yeah, that was that was a bit shit for me. Uh, I I really thought I really still think that they could have done maybe a couple of more albums, tons of tours, maybe not huge tours with their age and everything. But yeah, there was so much potential lost at that time. I think. I asked Dan if he ever managed to see the Ronnie James Dio lineup of Black Sabbath live. No, I never, I never did. Um, Dio unfortunately passed away by the time. Um, I, I mean, I was going to see when they played at High Voltage in London, but um, I think they played in the July and Dio passed away in the April or May. And for a while, it was a bit up in the air about like what would actually happen. But then they announced um, Yawn Land and Glenn Hughes would be would be stepping in. And at the time, I, th- I thought Glenn Hughes was a really weird choice, but I didn't know that he'd actually worked with Iomi before. And um, I don't remember this, actually, but I went with a mate of mine, and apparently when Glenn came on, like there was a, a guy in the audience like, fuck off, get off, get off. And like, like he had to be not pulled out of the crowd, but um, he had to be told to calm down and everything. Like, he hated Glenn. But I'd, I'd, you know, it's pretty good to me. But I remember at the time thinking that, um, that Bruce Dickinson would have been quite a cool fit. I know that they were on tour at the time, but I think on that particular weekend they weren't playing anywhere. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool if they brought because I, I don't, I didn't know who who they were gonna who they were gonna bring on until they came on. Like I knew that they'd be going ahead, and I like the whole weekend I was going like, oh, it'd be really cool if they brought him on. And it happened to be two people who I didn't even know at the time. And uh, I've got a mate who's really into Yawn Land actually, and I've heard quite a bit of stuff. And yeah, you know, he's perfectly right and everything. And I've heard um, Glenn from, you know, Deep Purple and a bit of like Glenn material and everything. So in 2010, the unfortunate death of Ronnie James Dio spelled an end to that lineup of Black Sabbath forever. The remainder of 2010 would see the High Voltage Festival, which was a tribute to Ronnie James Dio. And that was about it for the year. It wasn't until November 2011 that we heard from Black Sabbath again. In fact, it was the 11th of the 11th, 2011, when Black Sabbath announced that the original four members would be regrouping for an album and a tour. It wasn't long before Bill Ward pulled out, explaining that he had to be offered a signable contract in order to proceed with the tour and the album. We'll get back to that in a minute, but for the moment, let's hear Jonathan and Dan reflect on the announcement on the 11th of the 11th 11. Yeah, I do remember that, and I was psyched still. Like I had a couple of years to accept the fact that no more Ronnie on the scene. And I had seen them in 05, and it was great. So all I can recollect is that it was great. I don't even remember them sounding that old or anything. And Bill sounded great, I think, too. Everything was good. 
So I was st- uh, stoked. I was stoked to see, okay, shit, coming back again. It's going to be good. I do, yeah, I, I do remember it. Um, I remember it being pretty obvious so that, that it would be a reunion. Um, and at the time, I remember, I remember thinking, like, oh, cool. Like, I, I think even then I was more into, like, the Dio material. Um, but I did like I did like Aussie and everything. But uh, I don't know, like, they, they were quite old at the time. And, uh, well, I mean, you're, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't really, aren't you? But... I thought, okay, cool, yeah, they're going to reunite and everything, but they're not going to have like the same kind of like edge that they did when they were young men. But who does at that age, you know? But I think it works out quite well. Um, I know ultimately Bill didn't end up recording on the album or going out on tour with them, which was a bit of a bummer, really. But but yeah, I mean, I mean, it, I do remember it happening and everything, but I wasn't um, like jumping for joy at it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was I, I was more like indifferent, indifferent to it, really. The Bill Ward situation would get quite messy over the next couple of years, with members of the band firing barbs at one another via the media, back and forth claims about Bill's health, whether or not he was fit to drum on a Black Sabbath tour or album, and obviously Bill was eventually replaced by Brad Wilk in the studio and Tommy Clofitas on the live tour. I asked my contributors what were their thoughts of this whole Bill Ward situation at the time. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, I, I, I remember reading about them going off on each other on on Facebook, but I think that I think that was after 2012. I think that was probably more 2017, 18, maybe. Where, like right at the time when they were like wrapping up and everything, and, like Bill was still really like desperate to join up and like publicly negotiate each other and everything. But I'm. Um, I mean, I probably read a little bit here and there in like Blabbermouth back in back in 2012 when it all kicks off. But and I, I remember I was probably thinking like, God, you know, they're old enough, can't they get over it type of thing? But, uh, but again, I, I wasn't um, seeking it out every day. Like I'd read it like if it came up on my social media, but I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Oh yes, I remember very clearly, and I've gone back to this and reevaluated what I think. So I guess first I'll go back to my um, then self. And I was like absolutely team Ward at that time. And I felt like he probably got this shitty deal, like uh, kind of like uh, members of Megadeth would get, you know, like you're just a hired gun, something like that, a salary member, or you know, maybe, maybe a decent amount of cash, but maybe a fourth of what Tony would get. Uh, who knows? But uh, surely I was on his side. I don't think it would have been greed or anything. It was probably a respect thing, you know, like a, um, kind of honor thing like he felt dishonored by by the by the whatever was in that contract we're getting into it more than or you're starting to get into it that um, more facts came into the picture as the years progressed I started listening to i mean it's impossible to do the arc sabbath without mentioning right so here we go again i'm listening to his show the podcast yeah that's cool but uh, uh he uh kind of he shed some more light on it and uh also, some friends of mine, a lot of friends, were heavily involved in this band, you know, as you could expect. expect. And um, some of them were like, Bill is being a clown now. And uh, th- these were people whose opinion I respected and people I'd worked with that I knew that were like, uh, had their heads screwed on. And uh, I uh, looked more into it and I listened a little bit closer to some stuff he did in the reunion years and I could hear some sloppiness that wasn't the jazzy sloppiness i love he's one of my favorite drummers of all time and drumming is my favorite instrument to be a fan of that's my that's my heroes are they are the drummers and um, 
yeah, I, I haven't made my mind up and I guess I don't even have the facts to do so, but I give more credit to the other guys now than I did back then. I think there could have been some proper reasoning behind not including Bill. I don't understand it. I mean, listen, you're the four original guys, split it four ways and call it a day for Christ's sakes. I don't, I don't you know, this, this, we're going to give this guy a contract and we're going to, so then it's not Black Sabbath. It's, you know, it's this management company against this management company. You know, I mean, the four guys get together, do this, this last tour, you split it four ways. Everybody's made plenty of money. I mean, cut the shit. I mentioned to Melissa that it wasn't just a financial issue, or so it seemed at the time. There were also concerns, allegedly, about Bill Ward's health. Really? Well, what about Ozzy's health? <laughs> and and Tony's health, right? Didn't he have? He's had cancer twice. So I mean, I just I feel like I feel like I feel like I mean I don't know personally, so I you know I probably shouldn't say person you know exactly what I think happened, but it just seems to me that four guys split it four ways, call it a day, just four days, get out, do your thing. I think Bill Ward was always an interesting character in the in the in the Black Sabbath canon. Um, you know, he he came in and out of the band afterwards a few times, but really didn't ever stick around. There was no, you know, after Ozzy left, I think Bill Ward's tenure with the band was 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 so spotty. And again, I I'm never the judge one for 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 issues. It must have been really hard for the guy. I think it's kind of sad they couldn't make that work. Um, I don't know. Well, I'm just going to guess that it might have. I, I, I seems like I blame I, I blame Sharon <laughs> several times in this, but I don't know. It, it maybe maybe I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone else's. There's maybe two people in that band are getting a bigger chunk of the cut than the other guys, which would to be kind of sad, I guess. Or maybe three of them are. Maybe, maybe he wanted. Any, I don't know. I think that it's it's uh, it's too bad that the kind of final chapter, if it is the final chapter. You know that it's not it's not the four guys, especially when all of them are alive. There's some bands who don't have that option to to be the original, you know, gang going on and on. Uh, like the other day, I think it's today or yesterday was the uh, 35th anniversary of Cliff Burton uh, passing away in Sweden. Actually, so that's it tends to be kind of a people you know kind of make a big deal around here for that. Um, and I think you know, in the, there was an interview with James Hatfield at some point where he said he was kind of. You know, at the time, almost mad at Cliff for the fact that well, now they'll never be able to be the original gang, just going on and on and on. And I figured, you know, it's kind of because I, so I, you know, they're all alive, and I guess he could still play the stuff at that point. It just sadly couldn't make it work. You know, one last time. So you think maybe they, they um, gave him like a, a deal that was kind of meant designed so you didn't want to turn it down. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, no, I'm, that makes that meaning it makes sense why he wouldn't be down of signing that then. Yeah, it's just too bad. If it, you know, but uh, you know, I, I know he had you know hard problems back uh, in the ninety, you know, the nineties, uh, ninety eight, or I'm sorry, nineteen ninety nine. That's why they had you know, you know, the back someone you know waiting to take over if that were the case. So usually those kind of things don't tend to get better with age. So um, I would imagine, you know, I, I I would assume those this, whatever issues he had then will probably still be an issue now. Mick Wall mentioned earlier in this episode that when Black Sabbath agreed to get back together to play the Ozfest in 1997, that Sharon Osbourne offered them a deal. Ozzy Osbourne would get 75% of all of the proceeds, and the remaining 25% would be split between the other three band members. I asked Mick if he was aware that if this were the case in the 2012 or 2011 reunion. Here's what he had to say. If they're lucky, if they're lucky. 
I mean, it just meant that there was more for Aussie, you know, because whoever they got in didn't get anything, got a nice wage. Just like the drummer in Guns N' Roses now. Just like the uh, mini-me Izzy, you know, or the fucking chick on keyboards with the coloured hair, you know. They're all on nice salaries. You and I would enjoy that kind of money. But it's fuck all when it comes to the take. So it just would have meant uh, more for Aussie. And the other two, uh, you know, happy with what they get. I put it to Mick again. Was he absolutely certain that Tony Iommi did not have a stake in the name and the ownership of Black Sabbath? Are you fucking, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, he owns the name Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, poor Aussie, he got fucked over by Iommi. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mentioned to Mick that from the way Tony discusses Black Sabbath, he certainly maintains that he at least owns part of the name, even in this day and age. Fergal, 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 Fergal. It doesn't matter what they maintain. It's called lying. Lying. You are fucking lying because the truth is too appalling. All righty then. Let's move on, shall we? So, let's talk about the album 13. It's released in 2013. The newly formed version of Black Sabbath has recorded an album with Brad Wilk on drums. They've played some shows with Tommy Clefitos on drums in the live scenario. And this is the album that they released. So, I spoke to Jonathan and I asked him how he reacted, where he was, what his thoughts were when he first heard 13 back in 2013. I remember it coming out very clearly. I, I was probably in Stockholm. I mean, I lived a few places, especially in those years uh, abroad as well, but uh, I was probably here, I think. Uh, and uh, I, this was 2013, right? Must have been. So it's not just an album. It's ar- not an arbitrary title. It was 2013. So I was uh, late, uh, late 20s. And uh, I was in that time, I was super involved in the local stoner and um, heavy rock scene. You know, kind of stone rock, psychedelic rock, uh, all things kind of retro and also sludge, doom and all that. I did tons of gigs with bands. Uh, I made a name for myself just by actually being very loud as a sound guy. <laughs> that was my trick. It was like, this music sounds like shit if you put it on uh, legal volume. So I'm just going to put it on legal volume and, uh, and then hope I'm not going to arrested or anything. And I didn't. So I, I worked with three or four bands of that, of that ilk weekly during those years. I was super involved in that scene. I, I've done a bit of that music myself, but never released it. And uh, this album comes out like I'm, I'm a professor of this sound style at that time, almost. And uh, I was just so disappointed. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, what the fuck is this? Is like, this has nothing except for the surface values of this kind of music. I have revised my opinion a bit, so we'll get to that. But when it was released, I was just like, oh, this isn't good. Like, what the hell, guys? This is just like really surface level. Uh, there's the shuffle beat uh, that has the, you could say that every other hit kind of comes in too late and gives the heartbeaty groove, shuffle or 6-8 or triplet groove. And um, they do many of those riffs on the album. And that's kind of a, for me, that was almost like a, a joke within that music scene that every band would just have boom, and that says shit. That says, says nothing. It's what you do in between those parts that's important. And when I heard like a song like Loner, I think it's sad. I think it's so crap. I still do. Like Loner is a shitty song to me. Like the lyrics are just paranoid part two, 
same guy again, but now he's the loner. The music sucks. <laughs> I was just, I was just so disappointed in this album. I hated it when it came out. To be honest, uh, some of my favourites on the album, uh, "Loner." I think that's a really, really good, really good song. Um, it feels like a bit of a bit of a sequel to "Paranoid" to me. Like having read the lyrics and like, but you know, in "Paranoid," it's like a bit. Oh, it's about a young bloke, like a, a bloke, um, uh, well, who, who's paranoid. I'm talking like Steve Harris now, but um, <laughs> yeah, but like um. Reading the lyrics to Talona about a you know a guy who doesn't fit in with society and uh, um, he feels like he's bottom of the pecking order type of thing like it, it feels like a, a kind of like sequels paranoid and you know it's like a short and punchy and like um, made up of all the ingredients which um, made the um, old albums really really good um, and then another one uh, the one after that um, oh and also going back to Talona like uh, the one favourite part for me is when Ozzy going like, come on now. But, you know, that gives me like um, the hairs, you know, standing on the back of my neck. Um, Zeitgeist, I really, really like that song. Um, I really like it. It's very, very chilled out. Um, I really like the vocal effects on Ozzy. Like it makes him sound really far away. Um, almost, you know, calling out from another world. Like really gentle guitar solo underneath it. Really, really like that song. Um, and then the one after, Age of Reason. Oh, man, love that song. Like, that feels like it could have come off of, like, Sabotage to me. You know, that, that one really feels like they're um, enjoying what they're doing in the studio and, like, actually, you know, bouncing off each other and everything rather than going, like, okay, well, what riff would fit with that one? What riff would fit with that one? So I'm going to – well, I'm not a big fan of Rick Rubin, personally. Um, I, I think he has done very well working for certain people, like um, – Johnny Cash, you know, you can't go wrong with that. Um, I'm trying to think of other people now, but I, th- I know he's worked with Metallica and they did Death Magnetic with him. And from what I've heard about him as well, um, I mean, obviously I'm not in a major band or anything, but I don't think he'd be quite, I don't think he'd be very fun to work for. Like from what I've heard other people like Kerry King and Corey Taylor say about him, I think Corey Taylor, you know, from Slipknot, he was quoted saying like, um, Rick would come in like lay down on the couch and there'd be a person giving him foods, like actually like handing it over to him and it'd be like all stuck in his beard and everything. And he'd go like, yep, yep, I like that. I like that. No, do that a bit differently. Do that a bit differently. And then off after that. Like you, you, want, you want someone to be a bit more involved than that. And I think like a band like Black Sabbath, I think um, although they're not working class anymore, like they are, you know, a, a working class brummy band. And I think like if they could do with a more, I don't know. I, I I can't imagine Tony Iommi was too thrilled about working with him. But apparently, if they did that in two thousand and one, then he probably did enjoy, did um, entertain the idea and enjoyed it and everything. But me personally, I don't think Rick Rubin really got the best out of him. Like there, there are moments on the album which really really cook and like they're brilliant. Within, but we'll go into it a bit more later. But there are parts which feel a bit like um like they're trying to write like younger men like um. Like the like the opening track, um, end of the beginning, like in terms of like structure, um, for me, like it's very like carbon copy, like um, like the actual song Black Sabbath, like a moody intro and then like big riff and then uh, you know, keeping it up until the end, and it, it was like um, they were like, okay, and and for me, it definitely feels like they're going like, okay, well, we've got to try and like write a song like that. Um, I really was not interested in that at all at the time. I gave it a, a listen and I thought it was shit. Um, 
I've kind of revised my opinion a little bit. I didn't, I haven't listened to the whole thing um, since you and I talked about it a little bit. Um, I listened to the first three tracks and I thought, oh, there's actually not that terrible. Um, I think I was very kind of bitter that day A would not credit The Devil You Know as a Black Sabbath album. And then B, it felt as soon as Ronnie had died that, um, so I don't know. It's so it's I'll give it a, I'll give it another fair shake and I'm not going to be a sin. I was very cynical about it at the time and I was very cynical about about Sharon and Ozzy. Seeing as we bypassed it earlier, I asked Jonathan his opinion on the opening track of 13 end of the beginning. It's an OK song. Uh, the first songs I heard, I mean, again, that was my opinion then that I gave. I'll keep the, the updated one for a bit later. But uh, uh, yeah, this was better. Uh, God is Dead it was a huge disappointment. First song I heard. And second song I heard must have been Loner and hated it, still do. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, this one is a little bit better. Uh, still not that good. It sounds very surface to me. It's very much like, I imagine Rick Rubin just saying, try and sound like he did in the first three years, which I think is a terrible idea. I like it more now than I did initially, because initially I was like, well, this is just there, you know, this is, oh, this is, this, is, this is just the song Black Sabbath again. And that's obviously a very conscious choice to do that, to sort of revisit. There's, they do this several times in this album, which is very cool. But I think that obviously that is a very, that, that's, that's not a coincidence. This is not like, no, no, let's hope they don't notice. No, no, they're doing it very, yeah, you know, you're, you're supposed to notice as is happening. So it's revisiting, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to end something, you, you can, you should, you know, reference a lot of the stuff, you know, it's reference the beginning. Definitely. Um, that's why it has very, you know, song structure wise, you know, very much reminds us of the song black Sabbath, um, you know, with the slow and the, you know, ominous kind of chords and then the, you know, and, the, when the, and then the other riff that kind of, that's very similar. It's very similar riff from, you know, it's get really gets going and that stuff. Like imagine Rick Rubin working with Maiden and trying to do that. Like Senjutsu trying to sound like 80s Maiden, that would be shitty. Like they have actually, <laughs> like they Maiden have actually like kind of really cemented themselves with a sound that is current for them. I'm not saying it's current in music or anything. And of course, Black Sabbath, they don't have that type of history, but you can tell in, in the sound that it's just emulation. That's my word. Like this is an emulation of Sabbath, what I hear. But also, like, I guess I'm being two things here, a little bit snobbish in the Doom thingy or Doom Stoner thingy. But m- m- first and foremost, I'm being very emotional. Like it's a band that I really love and they come back and it's just like, ah, you failed me, guys. I trusted you. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off, but I heard he produced Weezer by SMS text message one day. He told them, nick the drum beat from this song. They did. It was a hit. I kind of respect that, you know, the minimalistic approach, but I think he's also a name at this point. Rick Rubin is a name. It's just something you slap on and show everyone we're big. We're Johnny Cash. We are, uh, we're big and we're cool. Uh, I don't think the lyrics are as good in this one as the, as, as the song Black Sabbath. There's, there is a, there's a line here that comes that is like, oh yeah, uh, you, you don't want to be a robot ghost <laughs> occupied inside a human host. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's fine. <laughs> It's funny, but it was like, oh, that's because I, I was, yeah, I, uh, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's other lyrics on this album that have better, that do have several songs that do have better lyrics, but yeah, that, that bit always that struck me as very funny the first time I heard it. Uh, I don't know why. I mean, it's yeah. well, here's there's a couple actually that I kind of really enjoy, and I think that there's what I'd say 
the, a lot of stuff on this song on this album is uh, it feels like they they haven't really taken very many chances here. This is pretty not business as usual. Is not what I'm trying to say, but uh, they're not doing anything. They're not trying to trailblaze somewhere near them. They're just, they're pretty much they're 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 staying in their kind of you know where they know they can do stuff. I guess. And this was kind of annoyed me when I was listening to it just the other day. Is like there's a few songs I felt like. Uh, uh, Methodemic had some stuff in there I kind of liked, but that wasn't even, that wasn't even on the original. That, that's a bonus track, and that kind of like oh that's too bad because that did have some stuff that that was kind of uh, you know different. I mean, there's just some so like just some guitar things in the verse that I thought was kind of different, which I, I think that's a better because the, otherwise the album does end on, on uh, dear dear father if I'm correct, right? And that's that's to me is not it's one of the weaker ones on it. Um, it I think Methodemic is a better song. Um, but I was also going to say, oh, yeah, but I think maybe Age of Reason also, like, that's another good one. But Methodemic is, we'll, we'll, we'll stay with that one. Yeah, and there's a, uh, let's see, I mean, there's even Live Forever is kind of, you know, all right. It's, it's solid stuff. But like I, think Meth- I think Methodemic was, for me, that was like, oh, there's some stuff on that that felt kind of different. The verse guitarist, like I said, primarily. Um, and that just kind of, uh, it, it's weird that wasn't, you know, wasn't one of the main tracks. Um, yeah, so the bonus ones were Methodemic, Peace of Mind, Pariah, and uh, is it, Nat- I can't pronounce this, is it Nativa, Nativite Black? <laughs> yeah, so that, that, but there, there's, a, there, there, there's, there's no big surprises on this album. It's, it's very, it's, I mean, except for that, it, it does sound very good. I mean, if you listen to the kind of stuff Ozzy was doing around that time, you wouldn't necessarily expect this to sound as good as it does. He sounds really good in this. And I know I'm sure I'm sure there's been some kind of tweaking, but yeah, he can he can still save. He can you know he's still pulling it off here. So yeah, re-listen to the album a little bit uh, now for your show, but also I talked with Ryan. I was shitting on it as I usually do, and uh, he was uh, suddenly defending it. He wasn't defending Rubin because I think we have the same view on on his contribution to it, but he was defending it a bit. And I went back and listened to it um, a bit more. And uh, end of the beginning, okay, uh, I think it's really good on the live thing they did i think then it really kind of yeah this works i would still say it's a bit of an emulation of sabbath but yeah it works god is dead i think is terrible especially towards the end when they go into the shuffle beat and it's, it's tired it just sounds tired to me like go to sleep and <laughs> loner hate it i've said before uh, like it's just uh, for me lyrics from paranoid done again to a slow to a, just a boring song like cluster has nothing there's nothing for me sidegeist well, now this is a song I like. It's clearly derived from Planet Caravan, like really clearly. They even put little congas in there and like the guitar type thing. But uh, beautiful melodic work in this. Ozzy is really good on it. Yeah, I'm a fan of that song anyway. It's a pretty cool song. I remember Damaged Soul stuck out in being also really shitty. Like Damaged Soul, I felt was a really bad contribution on all parts. Just boring ass riffs. Uh, Nothing to say. Dear Father, a bit better. Methodemic, can't say I remember it. So I guess it was not great, not terrible, I guess. Uh, but that one is a checkup. And yeah, it's a bonus track. And I was going to mention them because it's one of the bonus tracks that I think is the best effort of the whole production. And that's Pariah. Good, really good song. Great song. Heavy as with a Guns N' Roses flavor to it as well. Uh, in a sense, that kind of rolling riff. Uh, yeah, Love Pariah, I think, is the best effort on this. And the second one would be Sidegeist. Not too much love for anything more. Um, objectively, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the album, but to go back to what I said about Rick Rubin earlier, I don't think they 
Yeah, I think they probably could have done with finding a better producer. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong, wrong with like the sound of the album. I think it can be a bit loud, like depending on what medium you're listening to it. Like I've got it on vinyl, sounds a lot better on that. I think. Um, yeah, I, I feel like Rick Rubin. Like he doesn't really. Yeah, I, I think there are there are certain American bands who probably gel with him a lot more rather than a, a brummy working class band. And I feel like they probably could have done better with a better producer. Um, there are moments where they they sound really inspired and like they're enjoying everything but there are definitely a few moments where it feels like they're trying to write like younger men and um a lot of it feels very kind of like not crammed together but like a bit a bit disjointed um so i i out of the two albums i'd probably rate um devil you know higher definitely higher all right well that pretty much brings us to the end of the black sabbath story certainly the end of their recording career Uh, They would go on to tour again in 2016, and in 2017, they would tour on what was billed as The End Tour. There were a couple of live DVDs released over the last few years. There was live gathered in their masses in the early 2010s, and then at the end of The End Tour, they released a DVD called The End of The End. Uh, And they haven't played live since, since 2017, and at the moment, it doesn't look like they're going to. Ozzy Osbourne certainly has had his concerts rescheduled time and again, not just for COVID reasons, but for also personal health reasons. It was disclosed a couple of years ago that he does actually suffer from Parkinson's. That was always rumoured back in the day, but it was confirmed, um, I think last year or the year before, that he's suffering with Parkinson's. I personally bought a ticket to see his solo show for 2019 in 2018, and that show has now been postponed four times and will eventually happen, allegedly, in 2023. So you're talking about if Black Sabbath ever play again, It's going to have to be after 2023, 2024. Ozzy Osbourne would be 75 and a half years old by then. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen. But they did release an EP to coincide with the end tour. It's called The End. And it contains four tracks that were recorded as part of the 13 sessions. Season of the Dead, Cry All Night, Take Me Home and Isolated Man. Personally, I would say that Isolated Man is probably the best track on those out of those four. There was also four live tracks from the various tours. God is Dead, Under the Sun, End of the Beginning and Age of Reason uh, included on that as well. It was made only available at the live shows, but I'm sure you could find it online if you wanted to. So this has been a very, very interesting 10 months for me. And to wrap it up, I'm going to leave you with some final thoughts from my various contributors, various guests, if you want. Uh, Over the last 10 months, all of whom I appreciate greatly taking the time to record interviews with me. And here are some final thoughts on Black Sabbath from a selection of people who have featured on Ark Sabbath. You talk about these great riff writers. He is he is like the cream of the crop, you know, Tony. Yes, yes. But the problem with 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 Tony's riff writing is the way some of it was produced, you know, the 70s production and don't get me wrong. I've, I've been listening to the first, uh, what, eight albums that they put out in the 70s, all, you know, for the last three or four days. And I'm just, and the more I, li- and I don't listen to Sabbath very often, but I'm sitting here listening to them just going on, on, on some of these albums. I'm like, holy crap, this is incredible stuff. Just incredible. Overall, like we briefly touched on when we were talking about the, the different the different singers and if people can like they like Ozzy, they don't like Dio Sabbath, they like Tony Martin Sabbath. I think everyone anyone who likes Tony Martin Sabbath likes all the other Sabbath. This is this is fringe Sabbath, you know? It, it's for the diehards, it's for the fans. And on the other hand, you know, a lot of people just like the, the bluesy stomp and the the heavy 
blunt riffs of the early Aussie era. And some just like the epic metal of the Dio albums. Um, but I do think it's important, you know, to note that, that the, you know, I, I take Black Sabbath in sections too, even though I like all of it. But the first six albums that we all really love, they were, they were hugely influential and will always remain so. They wrote the lexicon for, for doom metal. I mean, just even just with not just the aesthetic, but, but the titles, the words, you know, you have wizard, electric, doom, funeral, grave, void, all those terms. That all came to define doom metal as we know it today, you know, from the early 80s, from bands like Trouble, St. Vitus and, and Candlemas, Pentagram, you have it, uh, into the 90s with c c Cathedral, Electric, Wizard, Obsessed, even into the 2000s with, you know, bands like Yob and Witchcraft and Reverend Bazaar. And, and today there's a kid in a basement somewhere, you know, starting a doom metal band because he's listening to Black Sabbath. Thank you, Geezer Butler. And so, and then, you know, the Dio era in, in certainly influenced uh, what will become now known as kind of epic metal. I mean, Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules. I mean, you go through through all the epic metal bands from, from you know, Manowar to today to the Atlantean Codexes. They listen to Dio Sabbath. And um, it, the influence is, is undeniable. That's really Black Sabbath legacy. That's why it will last forever, even though they weren't really never again as successful as they were in the early 70s. There's different parts of it where a part of me actually really likes the way that they wrapped it up with Reunion. I think that's an underrated kind of way, like the way they did it. They, I know they repeated a couple of times because they kept coming back to it because it was making money and it got nasty at that point. Um, but as far as the original, the, the 96, 97 or whatever that was, the, that was a great send off. I thought that was perfect. Um, the fact that they wanted to come back and they wanted to do a big tour, they wanted to hit places that they had never hit before because Ozzy's a fucking monster. He's always going <laughs> to come along. Uh, Iomi got his health up and everything. Um, and Geezer's just a stud all the time. He can, he's, if there wasn't a pandemic, he'd be probably touring with deadline ritual or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, Bill, I don't like the way that it, it it came out as far as like the back and forth between them. I felt like they aired their personal shit a little bit too much to a point where we were seeing behind the curtain a little mu too much where it's like, I would have rather than all just say, Oh, we're moving on because of difficulties or whatever, but it got into some of the reunions more recently lead, leading into the end and all that stuff. I think even when the heaven and hell thing was supposed to re re up, I think Bill was in some of the press conferences as the drummer for that. And I was like, why like no it's it's got to be Abyssin, man. Uh, it's going to be eventually anyway because bill can't fucking tour anymore um but yeah so in the evolution sense it i don't like it I, like i, I kind of like what they did i i'm a big fan of tommy conflitos i think he filled in really great i think he has a great vibe a lot of people say shit but they're just comparing him to what they think they would have got from ward but you look at some of the stuff even the reunions that did happen uh, Ward is hit and miss and he had heart attacks like left, right and center. And like, he just, you know, it's just a reality that um, the other guys wanted to do it on this, this certain scale and they were all capable of it. So you got three fucking lads that are able to do it. And one guy that isn't what I, what I wish they had done in which I think was a bit of a slag on him and bad is they, they should have at least done like the, the end, the end brought back Ward. He could get his chops up for one night. That's, that's, that's a bloody shame for sure. But um 
as far as like the whole cycle and even 13, I don't give a shit who's playing on, on this, the studio album. I don't need another studio album with Ward or new songs. I, I just kind of wanted that send off at that point. It's funny because um, there's aspects from the sessions I love, um, but I feel like the direction and the producer that was involved, uh, he kind of curated it down to something that didn't appeal to me at that point. Uh, the nostalgia is a little too heavy and it, you know, like there's literally Planet Caravan just with a slight change on the bridge or something like that. Um, and it got a little same, same. Uh, I think Ozzy sounds phenomenal on that record. That's the last uh, great Ozzy vocal take. And it's pretty raw um, as much as people shit on him for his vocal correction and all that stuff. That's pretty raw Ozzy and it sounds pretty badass to me. Um, tone wise too, uh, the other lads, Iomi sounds great on it riff wise, but there's just something about the overall, the way it was packaged and um, it was, Rick Rubin was heavy handed in that. I know that he's, his process is, uh, he's evolved or devolved into something that I don't like at all. Um, not a big fan of Rubin now, but I know his history and he's great in that sense. But when you got to Sabbath, that's not what they needed. And it seems like they brought a lot of unique shit um, when you look at the stuff that got left off the albums, the stuff that subsequently came out during the uh, the end cycle, and they did that little EP with some, those songs are all very unique and new sounding to me. Um, sound like a next step as far as Iomi's riffs. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you feel that. Even the bonus tracks, like if you look at the track listing, um, it's the digi digital world, so not many people have the, the vinyls or whatever, but like the bonus tracks that they put on iTunes, they're all, yeah, Pathodemic, Killer, a killer like Aussie vibes on that one. I know that he actually had a heavy hand in writing that one for once, and like the lyrics and stuff. Well, obviously it's not the most groundbreaking lyrics, but it's cool that Aussie's flavor came in. Um, and there's there's a couple of juggernauts too. Seasons of the of the witch. Yeah, punch that into YouTube. Season of the witch is like really cool. Um, it's got like a really um, military kind of drum beat coming in, very different and kick ass riffage. Um, so yeah. In that sense, I just think it was misguided as far as the, the production side of things and uh, the sequencing more than the production, maybe, because they all do sound pretty good on it. Um, yeah, he became he became a fucking uh, like a, more of a guru than a producer. I don't even think he's pushing the switches. I mean, there's no denying what he did for Slayer's sound and all that shit is, is awesome. Um, and I like I like Tom Petty's Wildflowers is one of my favorite albums of all time. And, and, and that's part of his process. He stripped him back on that. Um, but yeah, you're right. The cash stuff is where he lost me. And it, it kind of carried through. He just became the guru and he became really worshipped. It's never just music. Because at the end of the day, when I was a teenager, uh, and most of my life, but when I was a teenager, I mean, not only did I love music, if we were talking about whatever artist we were talking about, if it was someone I loved, I would know more about it than you. And if it was someone you loved, even if it was the same artist, you would know more about it than me. I mean, that's the nature of, it's like your man with the fan site. You know, he, he, he's accumulated way more knowledge than anybody else. And, and that's wonderful um, from a fan's perspective. Um, but as a writer, uh, I, I, I didn't, I'd stopped reading the music press long before I ever wrote for them. I only wrote for them because I need anything but get a proper job, you know. Um, music papers don't... 
you can listen to the music yourself. And when you do, you will know if it's any good or whether you like it or you want to invest meaning into it. You don't need anybody to tell you. What you don't know is the story behind the music. And you can be the biggest fan in the world, but you're still on the outside with your nose pressed up against the window. Uh, you've only got the records to go on and the shows to go on. And that's a lot. But that wasn't what interested me. Um, it's always been what goes on off stage, backstage, what went on before the show, what goes on after the show, the meetings that happen the next morning, um, the double dealing. I mean, the fucking rock business is the Wild West, or it certainly was back then. Seriously, people taking guns into meetings, people being beaten up, artists being beaten up. Um, Sharon was tour manager for ELO in the 70s, and she was a wild child. She would go out, she used to say to me, they were just a bunch of boring old fucking men, so what was I going to do on a 60-day tour of North America in bumfuck Idaho on a Tuesday night? She'd go out and party and do what any uh, young-blooded young person would do. And if you were a guy, people would go, what a guy. And if you were Sharon, they'd go, fucking hell. I mean, she would destroy hotel rooms. She was always uh, pissing in plant pots and shitting in the lobby. This is a favourite thing of hers. Um, uh, this is the fucking wild, crazy West. And um, I've forgotten what the question was. What was it? Right. An opportunity to tell great stories. And it seemed a good opportunity because obviously I'd worked with them a lot. The same thing that made me want to write about Zeppelin or ACDC or whoever it might be, because those stories haven't been told. You know, all the stories about the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis, and they've been told a million times over um, by some really great writers and journalists. But who the fuck's ever done a great book on Black Sabbath? There's been a few by fans, for fans, some of them very commendable, but of no interest whatsoever to me. You know, I, I always want to write a book that I'd find interesting. So the music is your excuse to be there. That's your ticket to ride. And, of course, you must cover it because without that, you've got nothing. As Don Arden coined the phrase, you can't polish a turd. You know, that was a Don Arden say. Um, so first of all, you've got to have something that isn't a turd. And once you've got that, what's the story? What's the real story? And I knew through my own personal experience that Sabbath were, had really, really, really been through some crazy fucking times. Um, and they weren't fucking Morrissey or um, Damon Auburn some fucking middle-class public school wanker intellectualized and everything they, as quote from Aussie we were four fucking dummies from Birmingham and we didn't have a fucking clue I thought what a great start to a story that is um and so to me it could have been it was like uh, your man that wrote uh, uh was it the 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 commitments Roddy Doyle Roddy Doyle yeah, it was like one of those stories. Sabbath were like the commitments, except they kept getting bigger and bigger and things got weirder and weirder. Okay, so before we finish up, I obviously could not have completed this task. I could not have recorded these episodes without the help 
and participation of all of my guests across the last several months, dating back to February of 2021, right up until November, just last month. I would like to thank everybody, and I'm going to do so in alphabetical order, by your first name or your pseudonym, so as not to offend anybody. So, in alphabetical order, I would like to thank Alejandra for the interviews I conducted with her on the 28th of February and the 4th of July. Specifically, I'd like to thank you for your warmth, humour, passion and your memory of late night agreements on Zoom calls. I'd like to thank Dan Mortimer, who I spoke to on the 1st of October. I'd like to thank you for your outside take on Black Sabbath from a casual fan, for your research and preparation and for your personal stories you brought to the table of Ark Sabbath. I'd like to thank Eric Shaw from Maiden A to Z, who I talked to on the 27th of September for your infectious personality and your willingness to chat at length, not only about Black Sabbath, but also about heavy metal in general and heavy metal culture. I want to thank Joe Sigler, who I spoke to on the 16th of March, for all of your endless, thankless hours of work and your willingness to share this story with a relative complete stranger. I want to thank Jonathan Headland from Maiden A to Z, who I spoke to on the 12th of July and the 1st of October, for providing a musician's insight, for keeping a drunken promise, and your unique takes on Black Sabbath, and all of your feedback along the way as well. I want to thank Melissa from Metal Chat with Melissa, who I spoke to on the 1st of March, for sharing your experiences, your childhood stories, and letting me inside your fascinating life. I want to thank Mick Wall, renowned music journalist and writer of many books, including Symptom of the Universe, which I referenced many times on this podcast, for adding credibility and doing a second interview with me after I'd just done one with him a few weeks before. But also, yes, for his book, his research and his dedication to hard rock and heavy metal for the past 40 odd years. I'd like to thank Philip Trummer, who I spoke to on the 18th of February and the 2nd of July, for his research, preparation, positivity and many stories from his life growing up as a metal fan in Switzerland and then later on in the United States. I'd like to thank Rai from Sabbath Bloody Podcast, who I spoke to on the 2nd of March, for doing a very lengthy interview with me and for his errors of work and knowledge and essentially setting the template for Ark Sabbath. I'd like to thank Uncle Steve from Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, who I spoke to on the 19th of March, for his enthusiasm, passion, unique opinions and entertaining manner, as always, on a podcast, whether it's as a host or a guest. But special thanks go to two people. Now, the first person I've already mentioned, it's Rai from Sabbath Bloody Podcast. If I hadn't heard Sabbath Bloody Podcast, I wouldn't have been inspired to do this series on my own podcast, Feckin' Metal. As I said, it set the template of what I was trying to do. Now, I think your podcast, Rai, is a bit different to mine. You do lots of different things, like you talk about the tours, you talk about the instruments, you talk about all sorts of different things. But I definitely took one or two ideas from you, including certainly reading passages from books, which has lent context to these lengthy episodes. So I do appreciate all of the work you did on Sabbath Buddy Podcast, and I would urge all listeners to listen to it if they haven't done so already. Secondly, I would like to thank Nesbitt from Talking Maiden, but also from the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. Nesbitt's format on the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is what I based my format of Ark Sabbath on, in that he speaks to many people, he interviews them about a topic, and he splices in their clips of what they've said about the topic, one after the other, but you don't hear him interrupting too many times. He sets the narrative for the episode, but he allows others to speak. So that was hugely influential in the way I approached doing the Ark Sabbath. So thank you, Roy, and thank you, Nesbitt. And last but not least, certainly not least, I want to thank all of the listeners of Feckin' Metal who've stuck with me through this lengthy process where there were a lot of false promises and schedules and deadlines that I didn't meet. And 
there were times when I wasn't even sure if I was going to continue with it, especially towards the start where I took a month off podcasting entirely just to get to grips with the scope of what I was trying to do. So thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating, liking my tweets, subscribing, contacting me, commenting and everything in between. I really appreciate it, especially during that month or so where I didn't release any podcast episodes at all. I had many people contact me and ask me if I was okay and how I was getting on and all of that stuff. And I really appreciate it because like the friendships that I have forged since starting Feckin' Metal back in October 2020 are some of the most important ones in my life right now. So thank you all as well for your friendship. Everybody who I spoke to on the episode, anybody I've been in contact with regularly, people, you know who you are, who I talk to regularly and who have formed bonds with me over the last year and year or so um, about heavy metal, but also friendships that have forged out of that bond and continue and go on and will persevere beyond Arc Sabbath and beyond any anything to do with podcasting. I think I've just made several genuine friends out of this. And for somebody who's 36 years old and living in Ireland, to have a lot of friends internationally that I've made through having a podcast is, is very special to me and I really appreciate it. That is going to do it for Arc Sabbath. That is going to do it for this series, which has been going since February of 2021. Over 10 months of work has gone into this. Again, thank you to everyone who participated. Thank you to everybody who listened. Thank you to everybody who shared these episodes. These episodes have been quite popular in comparison to some other episodes, some standalone interview episodes, etc. So I really appreciate all of the new interest I've got as a result of doing this, new subscribers, etc. But again, this helped launch Feckin' Metal as its own podcast. This helped me develop my skills as an editor and was a challenge and something that I could really sink my teeth into over the last 10 months. So for that, I appreciate it as well. And I'm looking forward to what might come in the future. There's going to be a couple of band interviews. I've got some other things in the pipeline in the can. Projects like this, though, are, are what I'm really interested in. Um, I want to come up with something that is as engaging and as invigorating for a podcaster or from the editing process side of things as this was. So let me think about that and come back to you. I don't want to make any promises right now that I'm not going to keep because I've done too much of that in the past. But it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to all of you. It's been an absolute pleasure to interview all of you. And it's been an absolute pleasure to review the music of Black Sabbath from the beginning of their career right up until the end of their career, which was essentially in 2017. It's been spectacular thank you for listening and i'm gonna finish arc sabbath just as it started that's all from me and i'll see you next time